Hello and welcome to episode number 50 of the Mid-Era Meets podcast where we've spoken to all sorts of people who work within sound and music. On the show this time we have the phenomenally talented James Wiltshire. Uh, what an amazing producer James is, uh, wonderful keys player, human being and um, yeah all-round good guy. Uh, he was part of the Freemasons duo who were Grammy nominated for their remixes for Beyonce. He's also remixed for huge artists. I'm not going to list them all because I can't. An amazingly talented producer who now runs F9 Audio, the world's foremost sample pack label across multiple formats. Thanks so much to the people who've donated to this podcast over the last four years. Uh, you've really helped spur me on. Um, I really appreciate it. So thank you so much to Nullsleep, to Joseph Farty, Jason McManus and Andrew Lemon who all donated across four years and uh, really helped this thing keep going. And so let's get into the interview. And the first thing that I asked James Wilshire was about his musical beginnings. Probably from my mum and dad. So my dad was a rock and roll fan. And my mum was a classical music fan. So I had this really interesting and fairly diversely strange, was simple on one side, simple because rock and roll was simple. It was effectively three or four chords and beats that were designed to make people dance. So that was his house music, 100%. That was his club music. Um, and my mum at the time was still going to church on a Sunday when we were very young. Um, she, she kind of, I think she became agnostic a few years later. Um, but as she would go, my dad would get the Reader's Digest Elvis collection out or the Reader's Digest hits from the 60s and 70s, which is when he was a teenager and it, um, the music you absorb when you're a teenager hits you harder than anything else you'll ever come across and you'll always remember it. So for him, it was reliving a bit of that with his two young kids and we just used to muck about in the front room, play fight, all that kind of stuff. And I always remember the Reader's Digest Elvis collection. He had all, it was like a, a collection of about eight albums. And when you turned them over, there was like a, a mosaic of Elvis Presley from the um, uh, the Las Vegas days with a sparkly shoot, a suit on, all in black. When you, all you saw were the sparkles and the microphone in his head, effectively. Wow. And we would always try and put them together. But look, that's, even though that's a visual memory, I, it was constantly on a, on a loop of 60s and 70s, effectively rock and roll and beat music. Um, but then my mum would always be playing classical music and she loved the melodies of the traditional. I think her favourite was always Handel's Water Music. Um, but we went through an awful lot and I was fascinated at that point with how some would sound incredibly present and jolly and some would sound uh, sad and... Um, just the emotions connected with the different styles were completely different and of course later on I found that was the difference between major and minor mm -hmm. and it was interesting that all the rock and roll stuff as I found out later on was pretty much all in major keys it was very up with the blue scale thrown in there for good measure so I was kind of grounded I think I suppose grounded on almost two things that could have turned in later on in the 70s uh, to disco now Rock and roll, particularly if you take original R&B, and particularly we're talking about the ones sourced from um, African-American artists, that that eventually t changed into funk and soul, and funk, soul, and classical music combined into disco. But I still remember the very first time I actually heard a disco record, which was in a roller 
blading club in the local sports centre. I was a I was a young teenager at the time, and there were some chic remixes doing the rounds in the eighties, and uh, I was I was gone. I was like, what is this stuff? I'd never heard it before. I hadn't. I was too young to remember it in the seventies, and we weren't really a disco house mm. um, or a disco household, I should say. So then, yeah, it's an interesting step up as I can see it now, but. Always, originally, that's what I remember, the mixture of rock and roll and classical. Mm. It's funny how many people mention those roller roller, roller skating events of, of music. <laughs> uh, yeah, they seem to be a, a, a big deal for a lot of people and in terms of like a, music, a lot of musical influences in there, like you say, in your teenage years. Um, there's a lot of stuff there. What sort of rock and roll bands was your dad listening to? Just oh, his, his biggest one, he was a massive Elvis fan. To, to be honest, his social media handle still contains the word Elvis in it now. <laughs> um, but we grew up in the same town as the Trogs were from. Um, so he was really into the Trogs, the Kinks, and not so much the experimental stuff. He liked the really melodic and um, well-written songs. He was a massive Buddy Holly fan. But it was, yeah, he, he just, he was born and became interested in music just as all that bloomed and it must have been god it must have hit this country like a you know he comes from a small town in the country it must have been incredible for him mm. to have access to that so for me to hear all of that from the first time you could hear the rawness in it and particularly i was fascinated with um, again the trogs and the kinks and the guitar sounds and uh, the everything sounded so powerful and everybody meant it. I think that was the other thing. You could feel the uh, emotion that was recorded from those things. That you could almost tell they were doing something for the first time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And having yeah, like new, new technology was moving so quick, so they could um, yeah. There was interesting ways of recording and and mm. um, and doing things like that. But yeah, also the legacy of that time as well is still relevant today. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, across the world, you know, you go abroad and people are still talking about the British 1970s rock and roll scene. So, yeah, I, I imagine being there at that time, it, yeah, it must have been something almost tangible. Yeah, and I always remember seeing the energy in my dad from listening to the music that he loved, and that then later on rubbed on to me. Um, but it was interesting that my mum's music also had a massive influence. I was always taken with melody to the point where particularly as I really got into dance music as a producer, I had to force myself to look at the bass end. A number of my early things that I were doing, I wasn't concentrating on the bass end, I was worried about the top melodies. And I think mm. my absorption and ability to be able to work with those has taken away sometimes from making sure that that groove is exactly accurate. So uh, in my early career, I knew that that was a problem and I had to really adjust a little bit later on. And probably all the way through my career, I've had to always make sure, and now I'm fascinated by bass end, so I'm always down at that part of the track, seeing what's going on. But yeah, at the beginning, uh, I think my biggest failing as a producer was that I'd got too obsessed with the melody side of things. And often it's about power and rhythm, particularly club. Yeah, yeah, the root of it. Yeah, I think, I guess um, everybody grows up with things that they really focus on and like weaknesses. Mm. But as I see it, I mean, in your music and your musicality, um, I think you have so much talent across the board in the music that you make. Um, I've even been out in, in, in Brighton and in shops and heard 
a, a track and I'm like, that's James's baseline. <laughs> I just know that's his baseline, and it was. Um, so yeah, you have, you have an, a tremendous like musicality as well as uh, you know, um, yeah, all, all of it across the board in terms of production. So yeah, it'd be interesting to talk about where where that musicality came from for you as someone producing. So production, well, if if we go back to when I was really young, I still remember um, walking to school one day and and I could hold a melody in my head and it was my melody. It was crap, don't get me wrong, I can't even remember it now and it was probably rubbish. But for me, I still remember leaving school in the evening and then walking back, it was about a mile walk back to my home um, and from my primary school. It was in the good old days when you could do that without having to get picked up. Hmm. and I'd, I'd managed to hold the memory, remember it, from walking into school. And without doubt, that's my first memory of writing anything. Not that I could play or anything or, or do anything with it, but I could hold it in my head. And I still remember that moment. I can almost remember the road as it was, had a kind of rough car park. And I remember walking past this car park and brushing my feet against a, a, some grass that had overgrown because um, it hadn't been tended. And on the way home and thinking now I've okay I can remember that that's significant and okay what does that mean didn't do anything with it for a few years and then someone turned up at my school with a violin and played it in front of me uh, it was basically it was a violin teacher looking for students and I think she played the theme from Popeye or something like that she played something that but it was so well played you're like oh my god and I think I met I'm, I'm at like feel sorry for my parents but bless them they did buy me a violin and I started learning that oh my god it's hard work it's absolutely horrendously hard work I take my hat off to any professional fiddle player because I just think the control that you need in that in the discipline and the accuracy and that was the bit I always struggled with um so that lasted about a year or so um and then my violin teacher actually um went on maternity and I don't think she was able to return back. I think she, um, uh, she, I think naturally she's got a child and she couldn't do all of the time that she was doing. So it, that kind of petered out. I remember someone else coming to collect the violin. Mm-hmm. Um, I got interested in, oh, well, the first computers were coming about. And, and someone on Facebook the other day posted a picture of like Windows 3 and said, I'm that old. I'm like, that's nothing, mate. <laughs> put a picture of my first computer up, a Commodore VIC-20. Really, VIC-20? That's 32. Really funny that oh no, was it like five kilobytes of memory, man? I've just interviewed uh, today. A podcast episode is going out with a guy called Tim Wright, who did all the music for Wipeout, and he did music uh, on the PlayStation. Ah. And he started out on the VIC-20 as well. That's such How a strange funny. correlation. Well, it was. I mean, they sold. I wouldn't like to imagine. I mean, look, it's so bizarre that these companies don't exist now because they had the market, man. They all the way up from the VIC-20, the Commodore 64, and then the Amiga, there was always a sound thing going on with those things. So the, uh, the, I think the VIC-20 had a SID chip in it, or was it the 64? Maybe the Commodore 64, but it would make noise. Mm, mm. So that was the most fascinating thing in the world to me. It was, um, you know, you could play games on it, you'd get magazines and type the whole code in for a rubbish game that's in today's standards but you know the whole family would go and play it I remember my sister going oh you've got the high score on this some rubbish thing and then you'd have to save it off onto cassette and then load it back on cassette and then every now and again the cassette would get dirty and then then all your work's gone you've got to type it all out again anyway long Mm, long complicated story but all of these things I remember the beginnings of computer music happening now I was too young 
at the time to really take any interest in the charts or anything like that. But my sister was buying all of the music. So, and so one of her friends from school gave her this brilliant collection of cassettes with all of the stuff that he'd recorded from the radio. And she lent them to me when I got a cassette player as I was getting older. And I discovered it all then. I just, um, all this stuff from a few years back. And then I said, look, can I borrow some of your, your record collection? And she had like Blue Monday, New Order 12 inch and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, uh, and my brain was starting to explode at this point That's of incredible. possibilities. And then when we upgraded the Commodore VIC-20 to as Commodore 64, we went off to Winchester and it was fireworks night. I'll always remember this. And we, uh, I'd saved up a bit of money and my dad was going to get it for me. It was part of my um, uh, birthday that had been a few months before. The thing had only just been available. So off we went. And the, re the reason we went to Winchester is there was this keyboard, music keyboard, that was made out of plastic and would fit over the top of I've the keys yeah, of the Commodore yeah, 64. Yeah, I think I had one at one point, sold it, yeah. I oh yeah, it's it. dreadful, because it's one of those things that you think, oh, this is amazing, it's, honestly, it's not. It's the same as plastic keys, it just yeah. looks better. Yeah. But it was for me, uh, because this thing had a selection of different sounds and you could play some notes. Yeah. Uh, now, my one of my best friends from school came over for a firework night at my parents' house. They had a nice big garden, we had a bonfire, loads of fireworks and all that kind of stuff. And I always remember us sat in front of the TV with it on and my mum going, we can't hear what we're saying back here. Can you two turn it down, please? <laughs> but from that moment, that was it. I was like, okay, musical keyboards don't just play piano notes. They do other stuff as well. And it was I was in secondary school at the time. And unfortunately, the first music teacher at that secondary school wasn't... Don't think he really liked kids, if I'm honest. Um, mm. He eventually left, but he'd completely disinterested me in music by that point of learning the actual notes and all the rest of it. And then, so I'd taken my options, didn't do music. And then on my last year at secondary school, this brilliant head, head of music came in. Uh, oh God, my goodness, I can't remember his name. I would love to remember, a wonderful man. Um, and I would always pop up to the piano rooms, I think, and have a little tinkle about. Oh, and, uh, nice. He caught me a couple of times in the theatre. There was a grand piano in there. And I was like, oh, I'm really sorry. He said, no, no, no. I've not seen you before. You're not in my class. What? And I was like, oh, I just, you know, I kind of took my options because I wasn't really interested in it. But, uh, you know, I kind of really like it. And, um, but I'm really into electronic music. And he was like, right, come with me. Took me upstairs. And he went, here's a CZ101 Casio oh, synthesizer. Learn it. You can come up here after school three or four times a week. If the, if, the, if the rooms are empty, here's a little guitar amp. We'll plug it in and you can play with it. Wow. And that That's was amazing. without... And now, I'm not his student. My tra 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 trajectory is not going to affect any of his internal scoring that happens in school. I was aware of all of that at the time, that these guys are all motivated to get grades and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. He just saw someone who was interested in the notes and went, OK, uh -huh. you need to investigate this if you're interested in the electronics here's a synthesizer and my god that thing is horrendous to program when you don't know what you're doing i think around the same time i had a little casio uh, sorry a yamaha porter sound i think it was the 422 the one that had a little bit of very basic sound control that would allow you to 
um, alter what I now know is a two operator FM. FM, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it would record a little bit and it had some dreadful drums that you could make a little pattern out of. It was the same chip that's in the Sound Blaster sound card. Ah. It's it's the OPL2, I think. And um, so you'll notice that the video games on the 486s that you would use your Sound Blaster in it's the same FM, two-operator FM, that's in the video game. Oh. So, there's, yeah, um, there is an 8-bit guy video on that Porter Sound range of keyboards, and he calls them the Sound Blaster keyboards. How funny. Um, so they've got such a strong character, like the wah, the sort of... Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, it was it was Yamaha's, I mean, brilliant thing to turn all of that technology into such commercial, into such mass-market products, because that, that was a stroke of genius. And it's, uh, the whole range, I mean, I learnt... All of my musical chops, effectively, the beginnings of them, um, from a little Porter Sound keyboard like that. But then I would go in and learn sound design with the CZ101. And um, it took me, I couldn't get anything that I wanted out of it until I realised that this was not a simple envelope. This was like this multi-stage envelope where it's a a position and a time. Mm -hmm. And I worked it out and I was like, oh my God, I can... And then suddenly I could change the timbre of the sound, I could change the... I could use the pitch envelope, I could use the volume envelopes of the different noises, and then, uh, so this, I must have been 13 at the time, 13, 14, maybe 14, 15, because it was in the last bit of school, but I'm like, man, and that little bit of knowledge meant that I could program pretty much any synthesizer I've ever come across synth since because That's nothing is as, as complicated as the fucking envelope on the, <laughs> yeah. on the CZ101. That's so cool, man. I mean, it's it's cool because you have this older sister who gave really cool music to you. Because um, I had a similar experience. My sister's a couple of years older, and she was into like the cool dance music, yeah. and that's how I listened to all those things. So I can relate to like how much of a it's just like look Alice through the looking glass sort of like this whole thing's happening by the way and you go whoa, whoa yeah not only right. that you, if you you haven't had to go through the stages that your sibling has to kind of work out what they want they've done all they've almost been the guy in the record shop for you they've selected yeah. they've been the selector they've gone <laughs> yeah. well I'm not having that nonsense I listened to all of this and she was like uh, Kate Bush Pat Benatar the ele- all the electronic stuff early Depeche Mode and you know her record collection was fantastic uh, loads of 12 inches as well she was really she would go out dancing quite a lot uh, when she was uh, 16 or 17 um, and because of that she wanted to collect the 12 inches because they were just starting to come through and she had things like the, the relaxed 12 inch the uh, you know the the big one that Trevor Horn did in New York and I'm like oh my god what is this <laughs> nothing else that I could put on a turntable sounded that big and that's also when I realized that there were differences in the power of sound mm. then I got obsessed with the back of the record labels Right, yeah, that's a lovely, oh, yeah. lovely place to go, isn't it? Yeah, and then I discovered, oh, the same people keep on cropping up on the stuff that I like. Um, and then another backward-looking one, I think I was just about just about to leave school and go into sixth form. And uh, in, my, in the front room, uh, there were some other records there that my sister had left, and one of them was The Look of Love by... Uh, sorry, The uh, Lexicon of Love by ABC, one of Trevor Horn's first productions. And I remember sticking it on. And I, God, I remember this. 
and then I was gone with the arrangements. You've got Anne Dudley from The Art of Noise was working with Trevor Horn at the time at the beginning and um, everything to do with that album was groundbreaking. They had rhythm tracks that were half programmed between 808 Lindrum and um, a real drummer. Um, so it, it was the first time I'd heard this perfect, because it's Trevor Horn and brilliant engineers like Gary Langham, um, this, this melding of real drums and electronic drums together but they were layered with all of these strings. Now it's a over the top pop album, but I can still listen to it day and get all of that emotion back. This feeling of how rich and warm this was. And it's lovely to go back now and listen to interviews with the likes of Anne Dudley and find out that that was one of her first string arrangements. Really? Wow. And I'm like, it is unbelievable. So basically she must've, everything that she'd learned up to the, you know, about arranging when she did her education and practically she dumped into that one pop rep. One, one pop production and I still to this day think it's one of the finest string arrangements ever done in pop um, wow. but it's made what, how, what the reason it was important to me is that it instantly went back to my classical upbringing with my mum and I'm like what you can put these two things together yeah and then I'm like oh my worlds. god this is unbelievable that's what's going on here then house music happened <laughs> well uh, the previous episode to this is with Fiona Bryce who does a string arrangement for she's done work with Kanye West Beyonce, she does a lot of John Grant stuff. She tours, she toured with Placebo for ten years. Wow! So she's all about the string arrangement, um, and uh, yeah, it was sort of fascinating to hear her story. But that's so cool that yeah, that one album was the first, but like the litmus test of someone just like oh, throw yeah, together some strings and it was amazing. yeah. And, uh, look, it apparently didn't almost didn't happen. There's a great interview with Trevor Horn where he says the f he nearly didn't use strings on that album because he was burnt a few productions back where literally the string players were halfway through a take ran out of session time, they put their instruments down and walked out. Oh, no. And he was so angry that he wrote the cheque and threw it on the floor in front, in front of the, the fixer and things like that. It was kind of bad old days of union days. That never happens anymore, by the way. Everybody's um, worked all that stuff out. Yeah, but also, was, yeah. Go on, sorry. Yeah, so, but also that was, it was so easy for string players to get ripped off and stuff. They were playing on all these big records and record sales were massive. They were probably only just getting the session fees and mm. you know, making such a difference to it. Fiona did point out when you know recording a string section with maybe like an electronic artist or with another band. She said um, there is a, a there is like a bridge a, there is a bridging that needs to be done between those two groups of people because they're from alternate worlds. Oh yeah, it's like there is a people management element to having yeah. string sections that you don't think about. You know, you think about the notes on the on the sheet. But there's also like a, a psychological thing oh, about God, people yeah. wanting, just people wanting to be sort of appreciated yeah. on both sides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe feeling, yeah, everyone having sort of a slight, um, um, yeah, um, what's the term? Respect for each other. Respect for the art. And also, yeah. I find particularly with great musicians, going back to what I said about the violin, you know, I've played the damn thing. I know how fucking hard it is. So when you see these virtuosos, and pretty much if you're hiring good musicians in a big in a big string session, and you've you've paid out for all of that, you're getting the cream of the crop. You know, you're very rarely going to get bad players. The work that they have done to get to that skill level, not just as a solo musician, but as a as a group of people, is it doesn't even you can't even compute so you are mm. getting a bargain when they walk in <laughs> you you're getting all of that time that all of them spent you're yeah, probably getting two or three hundred years worth of that's true man. Yeah, yeah so you know you hire a um you know decent string section say 12 players um yeah that's a lot of experience in the room right there and, yeah uh, and skill and re repetition you know to get 
that because you can put your finger anywhere on a violin it's fretless yeah 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 yeah. it's not like a guitar you can get it so horribly wrong so to do slurs and things in time with each other from these arrangements i think it's a astronomical i mean i get hairs on my back of my arms every time i even think about it and having been lucky enough to hire strings uh, a few times um, i was lucky enough to be given the opportunity to be in string sessions that weren't mine so i saw exactly what you were talking about the interactions and i noted all of it because i've got a big thing about um production is real production and I don't just mean sitting in front of a computer playing with um, Massive X, I mean proper <laughs> production where you're having to um, make a record in, in the context of making it work for a record company an artist and everything else is about people management, 100%, yeah. 60, 60% of it I would say, mm. in fact I would say probably only 20% of what I would call real production is about the music, the rest of it's about time management budgets, people uh, attitude, all of that kind of stuff, creating tension, creating peace, and all of this kind of stuff. Absolutely. But yeah, yeah. The, the string Quite players. Uh, one th- interesting thing I found about string players, when we did the Freemasons track Uninvited, we had real strings on it, and we also like, you know, we know we're going to have them for two for two main sessions. So we said to Simon, look, would they do another track? They went, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can do. I think it's up to three tracks for the same artist in a, in a session. Can't remember the exact rules now. Mm. And I said, well, look, we, we might do this kind of remake of um, uh, Ain't No Mountain High Enough, but the, uh, the disco version, and there's a great string line on it. And he, he, he took it and went, oh yeah, we'll definitely do this. So he, anyway, he scored it all out and it's a It's quite fast, but it's lyrical. This wonderful string line um, that was in the f- first choice version of Ain't No Mountain High Enough. Hmm. And I always remember, you know, that was done. We just done, it was tough and invited because it's so rhythmical. So I think eventually we had the string players all the way down to a click. Uh, we had to take all the production out. They were just better to just play to a click because they would hum- they would get distracted um, the the environment that they normally do spiccato stuff there wasn't or staccato stuff wasn't normally there so you don't have the atmosphere of the room and all the players playing so we took it straight down to a click so that was a tough session but we got it nailed and they were very happy they came in and were really pleased with how it had gone and then Simon the arranger Simon Hale brilliant guy if anybody's ever looking for a string arranger mm-hmm. Simon Hale is an utter genius in my opinion um he put this score of this disco record down and there was all this murmuring in the uh, in the room you could hear it on the mics and I said to Simon because he'd come in and said are they alright and he went oh yeah oh yeah and I said well so are they? he said they're excited and I was like what do you mean they're excited he said disco is lead guitar for string players <laughs> it is solo time and oh my god we, I, some, Russell and I were sat there they played the first one we were oh my god and you see these bows going up and down you're like they are having the time of their lives in there, and then they came yeah. in and they were like, "Yeah, man, that's great." Because yeah, maybe they're maybe they're used to a particular window of things that they would work on, and well, it's particularly, nice to just throw something that maybe they're yeah. not used to. And they're, oh, that's funky. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not just that; it's the parts that you get to play. So normally, if you think about it, you know, if you think about how strings came into pop music, it's going pad, 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 nice little movements and things like that. But in general. Um, we're even talking, I would say, even the Massive Attack stuff, it's slow and... But disco, you know, it was the case of... It's a bit like Bollywood music, I think. The, the violin players are going to sweat doing it. They're not going to muck about. <laughs> and they love that because they can attack it. And when you attack on a solo violin, it can be sharp and 
brittle. But you've got a section, it's just heaven. Because all of those little imperfections between the attacks have this rich sound that we all all know and love. Yeah. It was a, like a, fun, a wonderful experience. And they were so happy afterwards. And you think, and you mentally clock, it's like, right, okay, ever do a string session again, give them some disco <laughs> yeah. as well. Good idea. Yeah, also just to note out, um, shout out to all the people that see something in you when you're young or you're like learning <coughs> something like the the guy with the CZ 101 like those people are so oh the heroes instrumental in your life yeah. aren't they that, that that just see something in you that no one else can maybe see or like yeah. hasn't noticed um so yeah that's <coughs> like they can have a huge influence in your life i think yeah and the world in my opinion because yeah. how many of today's innovators had someone like that just at the right time to kind of go, you got something there, don't give up on that. Just at the point, because life is sometimes, particularly a professional life, and I 100% say this in music now, it's a bit like chewing broken glass sometimes. <laughs> it's interspersed, it's almost like the brain and the, and the universe intersperses it with just enough, yeah man, moments to make all of the grief worthwhile. Yeah, yeah. So my view is those kind of people that... Um, because you have to be quite selfless doing that. Um, it's very easy, particularly as you get older, to almost become jealous of people with talent. And I see that an awful lot in producers that may be older than me or around my era that see young people coming in with laptops and not not spending the 20 grand that they did on equipment and then getting uptight because they're, these kids are having more success. It's like, no, man. Yeah. You, you, that was a different era. They've got their own set of problems to deal with. They've got to deal with a full-on social media situation. You don't have to deal with that. Yeah, so, exposure. Yeah, so exposure. Don't get pissed off about the fact that it's tougher. Elevate them. Yeah, I think I did, I did listen to an interview talk about um, aligning yourself with success. When people have success, Like it's so important to, to feel the good and energy of that uh, success and not counter it because then you're sort of inevitably in your head like if you're jealous or if yeah. you're envious of it you're countering something successful and then you're basically unaligning yourself with something that's been successful which is oh like, yeah 100 percent. well not be, only that be good for you and no because what's going to happen in those circumstances at some point you'll say something or do something that you're unless you're a psychopath you will pretty much instantly feel some shame about so yes yeah. therefore everything to do with that process is destructive so in other words you felt resentment you felt a bit jealous so then that comes out at some point in some silly action and now two parties are pissed off yeah what's the use of that that's not got any better is it it's just that's two people being angry but it's very difficult to control but the one thing i would say within all of the human condition, the most important thing to get hold of is to understand when those negativities happen and realize, actually, that's not me, I'm not gonna, you, you have a choice. That's the one thing I would say. You, you have a choice every single day. Um, and the, the thing of, you can't teach old dogs new tricks, that's nonsense. I've learned that over the last few years, that as I'm getting older, I'm, if, as long as you open yourself up to new things, you, you'll get there and you'll be interested. Don't ever think that you can't do it. Absolutely. And that's where some of this comes from, I think. Um, and it's really important that when the negativity does come in, and it will do pretty much every day, to just go, okay, that's my brain just kicking off and doing that. I'm going to choose not to accept that or not to actually let that in. Because for a start, you'll be a darn sight happier. Yeah. It, and then it, everybody sort of around you is going to be happier. And look, imagine if that music teacher that I told you... Um, 
Uh, I, I often think about this. If that music teacher hadn't given me that CZ101 to play with and to really get into as, as often as I wanted for nothing back from him, if he hadn't just seen one human being being interested in something, I don't think I'd have had this career. Yeah, yeah. I might have gone into something else. Um, and I wouldn't have had all the amazing experiences that I've had and done. And also, I, you know, I ended up creating things. And now, surely that's a good endeavour. Whether it's been worth it or not, I always judge that by other people's situations. And the, the comments I got from the music, how happy, all of our music was uplifting. So a lot yes. of it made yeah. an awful lot of people happy at often difficult times in their lives. And I'm thinking, okay, that was all worthwhile. And that pretty much, I would say, all goes back to that. Mr. Coates, Mr. Coates. from Winton School. <laughs> what a legend. And just a lovely little moment. It's sort of like that growth mentality, isn't it? It a is. Bit. It's like so being which, open to new oh, things. Oh, yeah, exactly. New Openness. But here's the thing, though. If you think about what drives... Um, uh, I've seen a lot of people try to search for the meaning of life a lot just recently. And actually, it's just that they're asking... They're not even asking themselves the right question. What they're tending to ask is, what is the meaning of my life? And that's for all of us to discover individually. The meaning of life is incredibly simple. It's life is here to improve. That's it. If it didn't improve, we would still be microbes floating around in a soup and that would be it, there would be nothing else. If there wasn't an evolutionary process that pushed everything forward, um, and if society didn't improve, we'd still be running around chopping each other's heads off. You know, it's all that kind of thing. So that's all life is. So in that case, you've got to grease the wheels. You've got to help the process through on a daily basis if you actually can. If you can find something to help move everything forward. And music's a bit of an oddity because um, it does provide a bit of that, but it also provides a massive scope for narcissism and mm. self-interest because, uh, and that can happen accidentally as well, because if you're suddenly successful in music and then that success stops to starts to slide, it can bring out the absolute worst in people and you can try and you know find a way to fix it or got to get back to where we were and all that kind of stuff but life has a natural arc you've got to let it sometimes happen definitely and and a lot of stuff in life is out of your control isn't it and, and oh yeah and, and letting go of that control of wanting to control what's happening like trying to control what people think of you is complete is is a total waste of energy and you won't change it and if you try and influence it you'll probably make it worse and yeah. so it's one of those things if you once you let go of that what caring what people or worrying what people think about you suddenly you're free to like look at other things and explore and yes and and, and then and then somehow they that will change their perception of you as well so it's yeah it's it's definitely um Letting go of the things that you can't control, I think that's so important. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a very difficult thing to do, but you can do it. It takes discipline and it takes time to... Um, I always look at someone I discovered in recent years, but who's had a major influence in the way that I think, and that's Eckhart Tolle mm. and his view of bringing yourself into the present 100%. And I know a lot of the other guys are riffing on this, particularly the YouTube um uh, modern life gurus and things like that. There's a lot of them. Yeah, there are an awful lot. But I would say Eckhart really kind of started this um, this view of. Um, so it's quite a simplistic thing. If you think about how we go about living our lives, 
particularly you say about social worries, well, what's this person going to think of me? Well, if you think about it, what you're really saying is, what is this person going to think about me in the future? It may be the next minute or so, or it may be the next half an hour, but even when you're having conversations with people, particularly at parties where you feel that kind of social oddity, and I've never liked going into rooms for the people I don't know. Mm, um, <laughs> it's, it's bizarre. Uh, but then when you're talking to someone, what happens is your brain is going, oh, I'm just about to say this. What is that person going to think of me after I've said it? But it's already a little bit in the future. Where actually, it's not concentrating on what you're doing, which is getting the words out of your fucking mouth. It's just, mm. you're already in the future. And social anxiety is always about what's going to happen. What's going to happen when I go to the party next week? What's going to happen if I put this piece of music out? What's going to happen later on? None of it is present-centred. It's all about the future. And that's what all anxiety is as well. If you think about it, the anxiety is the brain state of worrying about what's going to happen. Now take the reverse, when we look back at the past, and I, I actually have almost a tick when I will remember certain events in my life, and I will almost have a physical and sometimes vocal tick, where I'm like, oh, oh, oh. and my wife will be like, what you, what's going on? Oh, no, I've just, <laughs> really, you know, I've just, you know, if you ever see me do that, that's because I've remembered something fucking stupid I did years ago. <laughs> and the brain does this terrible thing, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it's one of the reasons I stopped drinking, to, to <laughs> stop <laughs> having those moments. Having those moments. Because I just open my mouth when drunk, and then te even five, ten years later, it'd be like, oh, why did I say that? Ah. I need to apologise to that person. And I, I was looking at the, uh, like, 12-step programmes, um, just lo uh, looking at a book about it, and I realised one of the steps is going back to those people and as long as it doesn't harm or injure anyone apologising for those things so I think I'm going to have a long list if I were to do that <laughs> if, uh, like, to, to sorry I said that at that party 17 years ago well, yeah, it, it all of these things offensive. all of these things that you're trying to appease here are also the brain coming in and going listen to me listen to me I'm a problem solving device I found some more problems I've got I found some problems in your past and some potential problems in your future where your actual consciousness the bit that is all about your being and where you are is totally centered 100% of its existence in the present mm. and that's a really important thing to get and it's the one thing that I got from Eckhart Tolle was this whole thing of you're going to spend all your fucking life in this central point of, of right now there is only now there is not the future that is a mind projection your mind makes it up and your mind is brilliant at solving problems and if it doesn't have a problem trust me it will make one yeah and it will create instances in the future this is going to happen that's going to happen that's going to happen and then this very weird thing happens that because you've you have your life experiences your brain will go oh that could happen and it will start to actually create the chemicals in the head evolved within the emotions of that future event that the mind's imagining those chemicals get dumped out of your brain and physically you are in that situation you are literally in that situation yeah. and the trouble is with all those chemical releases that you can become addicted to that. I won't go into the process now, but the cells effectively have receptors for all of these different peptide um, emotion delivering chemicals. So it is possible to become physically addicted to your emotional states. Yeah, like that state of excitement. It, excitement in, an, in, an, yeah, in, in like not the conventional sense, yeah. but yeah, that heightened... Heightened, heightened yeah yeah exactly because these peptides that come out it's the same receptors that are involved in our emotional responses physical emotional responses that do, that heroin attaches itself to yes i've heard about this so this yeah, like it's, it's really really yeah. bizarre and it's been the thing you have to do is really you know from someone who's dealt with anxiety all of my professional life you have to understand that the mind creates a projection of what it thinks is going to happen and will come up probably with the worst case scenario Unless the you hijack it and say, do you know what, I'm not going to let 
it's almost like you've got a I've got a toddler at the moment and when they lose it man they lose it it's almost like the brain does that on a kind of daily basis it's just losing it but you can actually say all right I know what's happening I'm just going to let it have that little moment and then go right I'm choosing not to accept that I'm going to repurpose it and the, the best way to repurpose anything is to bring yourself right back to the moment that you actually are and you can do that with a physical sensation that's why all meditation is to do with concentrating on the breath mm. when your mind when your consciousness has taken control of your mind and said right stop thinking about you know stop thinking about that hi-hat that you've got to change in that track come back to right now and um, concentrate on your breath the moment you concentrate on that the brain can't wander off and think about other stuff and if you can control that and bring yourself more present on a daily basis you'll be a hundred percent happier i certainly am after after having worked it out and it's like a judo mind trick because you can walk down the street and practice it you don't have to close your eyes sit cross-legged and listen to some tibetan flutes <laughs> you can just do it walking down the street and be going like yeah man i get it it's yeah. like i can see everything and you, you suddenly become hyper aware you can you've got this three-dimensional map of sound around that you hadn't been paying attention to you can put your arm out oh, i've done this to you once so you say right put your arm out hold it can you feel the tingling? You're like, yeah. Can you feel your heartbeat? And you're like, yeah, I can feel my heartbeat in my hand. Well, that's there every day. You're just not taking notice of it. But the moment you put your attention on it. Yeah, and it's magical, isn't it? It's like you realise there's a sense of wonder and in yeah. incredibleness in like, our bodies and in everything. Uh, yeah, I always, I always say to people, you know, if people are sort of stressed or feeling uh, anxious and stuff, like, just, like, go into nature, go to the park, and just go down and look at, like, small yes, things. it's amazing. Go and look at the detail that's in the world, and it's fucking incredible. But, yeah, um, thank you very much for sharing that, man. I know it's, like, not an easy thing to talk about being anxious, and, um, yeah, it's nice for you to share that sort of stuff, because I imagine, because people know the Freemasons and they know your, your sort of music stuff, they maybe put you on a sort of godly and a godly place of invincibility yeah no, it's just sometimes. not the case no well, it's the same with i mean i having met an awful lot of people you would not believe the stuff that um people are going through and they have to put the kind of veneer face on it it's unbelievable everybody's yeah. everybody thinks that when you get to a certain place and this is another trick of the mind you think oh yeah when i'm successful and famous everything's going to be sorted mm. now you've just got another series of problems to deal with it's like yeah i think darren brown uh, in his book happy talks about you know when you're booking a holiday and you go wow look at this saint lucia this is going to be amazing oh look at the sea but you forget you're taking yourself there and then you get there and you go oh why do i still feel like shit what uh, it's, it's really funny that yeah he mentioned that in his book that you forget you're taking yourself there and i think it's a similar thing that you um yeah you, you're like wow i think you know when i get that success when i get the 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 uh the lamborghini or whatever um that's when it will click and yeah. suddenly but yeah you're, you're in the lamborghini you're like oh I still feel a bit weird. Yeah, no, and also yeah, some people can <laughs> feel terribly worse. out of place. I heard a story the other day that I think Ed Sheeran's got a DB9 and he berates him. Anybody who asks, asks him about it says, yeah, but I look like a dick in it. It's just, you know, he fully understands that it, 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 it's, it's a situation that he always wanted and he loves cars, but uh, actually it doesn't feel quite right within it. Um, mm. And here's the thing, I don't think you will ever feel 100% right if you chase materialism. 100% the, I think my mum told me the other week, which was a fascinating thing, that she remember reading about a study in the 50s and 60s, I think it was the Dutch, and of course they're pretty good at all this kind of meta-thinking, they always have been, and I think they worked out that it all comes down to family, 
um, a, a, a lifestyle that involves other people and most importantly the biggest one the biggest takeaway there were some other things as well health that was the, a, another major thing mm. but the biggest one was if you can help other people apparently that is the biggest correlation they found in the study between happiness actual happiness of general happiness and well-being compared to anything else money wasn't even sort of really part of it now money can take away the day-to-day -day stresses and certainly can be a big factor but it's certainly not one thing that i would say would um it doesn't really bring a sense of well-being that you kind of it's i think that's the thing everybody's really really looking for and the one thing I found is having made the jump from an artist into this sound design world that I'm in now with F9, I've never been so happy in my work because I work hard to make sure the releases are good and then I get to talk to the people that are using it and finding what they're doing with it and finding how happy they are to have access to sounds that they maybe couldn't get through other, other means. And that has, me, has meant everything to me in the last few years and probably now why I, I will only go down this route because it's made me much happier than making records yeah. and I love making records but it, this is wonderful because you feel that uh, you feel that you're bringing a community up you feel like you can you know you can see that we're in the room with all the synths and all the bits and pieces here I've got I'm lucky enough to have access to a whole load of stuff that other people can't but I can transfer some of this into their systems in a way that will be useful to them, and that Absolutely. is a wonderful thing. And yeah, and the um, yeah, obviously it's a fantastic, it's a fantastic studio. The um, like some of the signal chain, <clears throat> the signal chains in here as well. You know, it's not just necessarily that you're playing a Moog. Uh, it's that it's that you also you've got such incredible knowledge of like how to how to really get the best out of that. Yeah, stuff. but that's all trial and error. So it's not. Um, you have to understand. Yes, I'm, I I will take that and it's true I have spent a lot of time doing it and I, I was very lucky enough to be trained from a lot of engineers but it's because I've made all the mistakes under the sun as well and when you you only ever I mean my daughter comes back from school and she said oh I got a time out today but she said it's okay the teacher said mistakes are how we learn and That's it cool. is the most poignant phrase that every human being should actually remember because people get themselves in a terrible state, particularly with music production, because I think there's this kind of stupid perception that you should walk in to your profession and into this and be brilliant from the word go. And if you're not, you're a loser. Mm. And I don't think people realise that every single person started off with absolutely zero knowledge. And it was trial and error on certain things and then maybe you get good at one thing and you make, make somebody else is good at the other thing you get on they teach you that you teach them your bit um, but it is you should never ever 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 think that any mistake you've made in a production a job or anything like that is uh, is a failure mm. it is just a path to learn the right way it's so, an opportunity to learn isn't it well yeah, it's not just yeah. an opportunity you have learned yeah. it's it's an opportunity something that might happen if you make a mistake you have learned yeah that's it at the, the end of the day so basically if you were to walk into a studio say and you didn't know how to use the console but you pressed randomly all the right buttons the right way you've not learned much Hmm. You have to press the wrong buttons to go. Oh no, fuck! That doesn't work. That sounds That's dreadful. Really good this, oh my really god! You know, you have to do that. The only way, and this is the thing that really, the only problem that I find 
in kind of producer land is there are a few people looking for a silver bullet, a magic bullet, something to just go, all right, if I take this course or I do this process, that's it, my mixes are better. I'm gonna, I'm gonna sound amazing, everything's done. Um, you know, it's, it, there must be one plugin or one plugin chain. Uh, and it makes me laugh when you see, uh, there was the best mix engineer in the world or the most successful, the big pop guy, Serban Genea. Um, one of his, I think his second in command did a, a thing on Gearspace where um, he, he, it was an ask me everything, ask me anything uh, kind of thing. And mm. um, everybody, there's loads of people going, what's on Serban's mix bus? And he's like, well, that A, that's not for me to talk about because that's Serban's thing and it's proprietary and it's something he's done. Uh, but also, if anybody else went in and used that mix bus, it would sound fucking dreadful. Yeah, you don't know how to... It's, no, it's that you have to you have to have gone through the process. You have to know. You have to have learned all of those steps up to that point. And the only way that you're going to learn that is to do it dreadfully wrong, first of all. I'm a fine one to talk, honestly. I used to get, I used to feel the hives come up. Even working with Russell, and Russell and I were very, very close, and I was the more technical one. Yeah. But if something was going wrong, I would, I could feel my neck going bright red, and I'd have to walk out of the room and go for a walk around. And then the voice in your head starts, the one thing I've now learned to ignore, because it's just a voice, it's not you. Mm. And it's so self-critical. It's like, oh, you're shit at this. You know, imagine if such and such was in the room. And the one thing I've always noticed with producers is that you create this fake audience behind you. You put all of your peers and your heroes behind you in the room, and and they become the commentary of mm. you, that's a shit kick drum isn't it throughout what the process yeah, yeah. yeah and it's yeah, nonsense yeah. that's your brain creating it you have to keep control of this irritable child in your head and go that's just my thoughts alright mate fine absolutely it can be quite difficult because the moment cortisol is released the stress chemical mm-hmm. two things happen first of all your hearing becomes attuned to the more vocal range now, this is hereditary and it's uh, evolutionary so if you think about in the wild you're hunting as a pack which we did for t- hundreds of thousands potentially now they're discovering even longer than we think we did this for an awful lot we were hunter gatherers so if there's a tiger in the mix here say you're hunting some wildebeest or something like that but there's a saber-toothed tiger in the bushes if you suddenly get to know that that's why cortisol release happens it's a it's a, a thing to get your body ready so the adrenaline gets pumped out because of this hormone um, and then as I say everything changes and one of the crucial things that happens within music is that your hearing narrows it concentrates on the mid-range because that's where the vocal commands from your group are going to be get out the way now move out the way the tiger's coming this way all of that kind of thing so you are heightened and ready for that bandwidth where all of the kind of snapping of branches movements and all of that you're not going to be listening to the rumbles or the the this the this um you know the the sky opening up and it raining the top end information yeah it's going to concentrate on that and the one thing I've learned is every time you get stressed trying to do production or a mix give up stop and walk away mm. because all you will do is fiddle around with the mid range and when you come back to it it will sound dreadful yeah because you've pushed all of that to try and probably monitor too loud and all of that kind of stuff so I think you mentioned to me um, 
about using things like ozone and the mastering assistant in there because that is an objective oh yeah it's an algorithm mix. yeah so um yeah and and i've ended up um yeah using it a lot after your advice and finding that yeah it's it's really it's such a nice way to just objectively uh listen to your mix aside taking your own feelings and emotions and whatever state. out of it and yeah. going well, wow, that was a flat line that it came back with. That yeah, no, so, exactly. so now also you probably found that you did that in a quite a, a quite an easy mental state. So your mental state, particularly if you're creative and emotive, will have a dramatic effect on what you do um, sonically. Mm. And I think why, uh, I mean, I would put all of the best mixing engineers down that I know as very calm people because they just don't get flapped about the same stuff you know, that I might get flapped about or something like that. And that's because yeah. so that means they can go in and objectively they have a sand on their head that they're going to get to without their emotions coming up and maybe skewing that perspective. Um, I would also say that I think that there's probably a correlation between how you perceive music and air pressure. So you go into, if, if the air pressure suddenly one day, you know, it's high air pressure and then a low air pressure sleeps, sweeps in, well, Potentially, there's less air particles in the uh, in the room, so that might have an effect as well. There's probably all these kind of things that will have an effect. So you have to be understand that you're not fallible. You're not going to be repetitive each time. There's the only guy that I know who is actually there's two of them. Uh, they both work at Wired Masters, Kevin Granger and Cass uh, Irvine. They uh, I've never heard ears that are so consistently accurate. They have a sound that they both have, and that is it. That's what you're going to get, and it's brilliant because it's it's luckily attuned to almost like the human condition. And I've got a feeling of this. When you look at you go around and look at people's ears in the street, and everybody's ears and noses are dramatically different. So surely that's replicated inside. That's surely true. that difference. Yeah, that's true. Now you think about hearing as an actual thing, and it's these all of these hairs in the inner ear are vibrating in time with the music, and they've got nerves attached to it. That's how we hear sound. And that's why you can do damage if you break some of them off with a very loud noise. Um, that they're going to flap around and give you tinnitus and all of this kind of stuff. So you've got to be careful of all of that. But also, let's have a look at the hair on people's bodies. Well, that's all different, isn't it? Some people are really hairy. I've got really hairy forearms. Um, I know some people whose backs looks like a gorilla. You know, it's just yeah. we are so different genetically that without a shadow of a doubt, the insides of our ears are genetically different. And I think there's those amongst us that are that have superior hearing I that if we right. could just borrow their ears for a day we'd hear everything completely differently same ear as transplant. eyesight get an ear transplant yeah well <laughs> also look at chefs their tense sense of taste it's not training all of it yeah anybody can become a good cook but the, to be the finest chef in the world you have to have an acute taste system and smell system so yeah. that's you know, with the variation incredible? that nature provides on every single level, and now you know it's brilliant. Now we're finally in this situation where we're all going, okay, gender's a spectrum too. Fantastic. Finally, we're getting to this bit where we're all accepting how individual we are. But we've also got to be aware of, okay, my ears are going to be attuned to a certain thing, and that person's ears are going to be attuned. They're going to probably hear music totally differently to me. And as mm -hmm. I say, I think Kevin and Cass have found exactly where they should be in in the music industry because they can do these incredible mixes that sound the same every single you know just or not the same but the same quality the same detail every single time can we can we do like neural network analysis of their ears and get like a <laughs> model? well i'm sure it's probably if you looked at how they i mean if you probably wired them up um and with a brain scan and wired you know your average person up then 
you know, it's good. Think about the choir at school. Everybody did some singing at school. And you, I, it always used to make me laugh looking back now that they used to put the rubbish kids down the end of the choir and furthest away from the teachers because they'd always be the ones that, you know, you do those rounds. I always remember, I can't remember what it is, one hymn we did in my school. And there would always be the kids at the end that forget that you have to do it three times, then stop. So not only are they out of tune, but it would be like, ah, at the end, oh, it's... <laughs> they're like the detune, you know, when you detune yeah. an oscillator, they're like the seriously detune. Yes, yeah. So basically, look, ability a lot to of, um, drift. <laughs> when you think about that as an actual physical thing, the ability to give pitch or to re represent pitch from your voice has a massive genetic variation, which is only natural. All, gen all genes, by their very definition, create this variation. Otherwise, we'd all die off. So that's going to be replicated in your ears, and one hundred percent, that's something to really grab hold of because I see people get terribly uptight when they've watched a video say of such and such producer or mix engineer it's not so much the mix engineers it's always the artists and producers because they like to show off in my opinion they go, yeah i do this this is what i do this every time man yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and then you try it and you're like don't work for me but people get terribly uptight going oh my god what's wrong with me this guy you know he's smashing it he's a major star and he's doing all of this and uh, if i tried to do it it sounds dreadful well potentially it's because your ears are so dramatically different from that person that you're going to appreciate all of this stuff in a different way. I mean, to take, I always remember the famous clip that went banded round after the masterclass video is that um, there's Dead Mouse saying, "Why should we put an S? You, you don't, you know, putting a, I think it was putting an SSL on a, a SSL compressor on a kick drum is a stupid idea." Well, no, it's not. Depends. It, it's that's yeah. your appreciation of it. Now, I think he was taken out of context a little bit because I think he was basically saying, "What's the point of putting? You don't need to put two thousand pounds of hardware on, or three or four thousand dollars of hardware on a dance kick drum. You can do it with other compressors." Yeah. Um, but it, it, people take all of this stuff so literally. Yeah. Try to absorb that. it and then go, "Okay, that, that person's huge, and they've said that," without realizing that they are so individual themselves. All you can do is cherry pick. You've got to try everything. Try every single technique, and if it doesn't work for you, ditch it. Maybe try it again if you quite like the idea of it, and maybe you've got some of the process wrong. But if, you, if it doesn't work for you, it's not working for your ears, chuck it out. Mm. You probably hear the attack transients of a snare totally different to any other person in the world. So there's no point going, oh, that guy has an attack setting of 30 milliseconds on his snare, so I'm going to do exactly the yeah, same. If that doesn't that. work for you, it doesn't work. If it doesn't sound right... Definitely. I found that at university with like people saying, oh, where do I EQ this snare drum for drum and bass? And people was like, oh, 180 hertz. And, and then, um, yeah, it doesn't, it totally, from one snare drum to another, that, that can massively change how, the, the, oh, the, God, how it's yeah, going to sound. Yeah. So if you always set your snare drum EQ to 180 hertz, which like, I mean, obviously that will be good at some sometimes, but yeah, you can't just flat have this thing for all snare drums because snare drums are massively different from one drum machine to a to a drum break. You're gonna need to tune yeah, it, and, and you're also look, to if you're going to acoustic it drums, it's an a it's a resonant instrument. The body, uh, the body dictates the actual frequencies that are going to come out of it because the, the the body is resonating when you hit the top of a snare, for example, a real one. So the actual physicality and the tuning of the uh, strike, the tuning of the head, dictates the excitation that's going into this resonating device. And then the resonating device that have multiple frequencies, so the fatness and that bit that you're trying to get around 100 hertz um, is going to change on the instrument. So if you're doing that on a digital EQ, nightmare, because if, you, if someone said, 
let's take these examples because there's so much of this it's like right this bit is that now uh, you know so if you want the whack to come up use this frequency point and all the rest of it well it is all down to the sound and it is all down to how the sounds are fitting together as well and down to the tunings of the individual sounds of the resonant bodies of particularly of acoustic instruments um and you've got to use your ears and you don't you don't listen to sound with your eyes you only listen with your ears um but also a lot of this comes about as well because people are dreadful um, and they did it once and things that, and, oh that worked so that's that's it that's my rule so I always do this and all this kind of stuff and uh, yeah <laughs> from that moment on that's what they're always going to do now if you're using hardware for example behind me I've got some Neve equipment Rupert Neve spent huge amounts of time researching frequency points that were generalized so in other words the bits that he knew worked for a spectrum of people a large group of people. He did a lot of listening tests. He didn't just rely on his own ears. Mm -hmm. And also, Navy cues are very wide in their in their bell shapes. You can narrow the cues up uh, on some of them, but only really the later ones. So his EQ points have become kind of quite repeatable um, because we've seen them on so many pieces of equipment. A lot of these were big, chunky, you know, selectors. We're EQing at that at that frequency. But that's basically a really wide EQ bell that will cover a lot of range. That was the beauties and musicality of his circuit design. Mm -hmm. So I can see why certain frequency points have made it through the mess that is modern music. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there are some things that do work. For, for example, vocal clarity. If you're ever struggling with vocal clarity, try 6K. Now, that, I would say, is a generalised thing down to the human ear, that maybe we are looking for that clarity as a species within that range. But again trying to do really tight EQ moves and things like that you've got to do it by you've got to take into appreciation all the variabilities that are absolutely happening Yeah, so maybe let's talk about um, D DMC. <laughs> yes, and my beginnings. So my beginnings professionally. Well, actually, it didn't start at DMC. It started in this town where I'm in Brighton. Mm -hmm. um, a studio in London called AdVision um, closed in London and came down and uh, went up on St. James's Street. And but for some all sorts of strange reasons, I ended up there uh, helping out, just the runner and all that kind of stuff. Um, it, unfortunately it was during the recession so the studio didn't actually survive all of that but I met some wonderful people there including Doug the owner um, his daughter Sarah that um, uh, that was running it at the time and uh, Jeff Downs uh, the keyboard player from uh, Asia and I think he was in Yes for a bit as well oh wow. in Buggles with Trevor Hall wow. so downstairs he had a synth collection as well and I was kind of looking up out for that for a bit um, and then when he came back I was helping him and his uh, singer partner in Asia at the time did some recording, but it was fascinating because I came across, you know, he had a real fair light and he was showing me, this is the disc, you know, massive things, ka-chunk, boop, 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 flute sound. Wow. <laughs> you know, it was that, that was the, that kind of thing. He had an Elka Synthex as well and he showed me the high-pass filter on that and he, just one of those guys that was happy to show you all the tricks, basically, and this lovely collection of instruments. Um, and then in walked there a chap called Jason. He was looking to do some... Um, dance stuff and it wasn't 
the studio wasn't really set up for it uh, there and he said look we're gonna go up to London would you like to come up because we'd got on so I popped up um, and he was in a band called the Delorme at the time that was signed to Zoom Records in London with a lovely chap called Martin and a guy called Chris um, and they were all centered around a kind of connection with a club called the Gardening Club in um, Covent Garden um, Anyway, to cut a long story short, the first couple of bits we did for Zoom went down quite well. It was piano house, it was quite vocal-led, all that stuff was just starting to kick off. We're talking probably still early 90s, before 95, maybe 93, 94. Um, and this company called DMC were quite well known amongst DJs. I'd never really heard of them. I, 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 no, that's not true. I had because they hosted the mixing championships, which... Uh, were the scratch mixing championship. Yeah, the Oh God, it was just amazing. Um, now, what an amazing time, really. Just, you know, abuse of technology um, in, a, in a creative form. But <laughs> what people don't realise about DMC is they pretty much invented remix culture. So they'd started off with mega mixes, believe it or not. Um, and it was Tony Prince and his wife, Christine, running the company, and Christine's uh, sister... Uh, Susan that I remember the most there and they had um, built this thing up through mega mixes which had kind of never really been done before this sequenced stuff a sequenced collections of music you know multiple tracks over one thing uh, sometimes on the flip side of a record was like a yeah. technotronic single and then they had and the, the mega mix of like three or four of the yeah well you'll probably together. find I think they even coined the term the first time uh, coined the term mega mix but they then started to now they had this really interesting license with the PPL that meant they could take any record and repress it including these mega mixes, as long as it only went to DJs. So it was a DJ-only subscription service. So the public didn't really know much about DMC, but they knew a lot about some of the luminary producers that were in there. Mm. Um, you know, Alan Coulthard, he's, bless him, he's passed now, but he was one of the premier guys for mega mixes. Um, but then, uh, moving, moving on, I wasn't there at that point. So we got pulled in to do a remix there. Of, they had an internal record label called Stress, so-called because it apparently caused everyone loads of stress. <laughs> but they'd had a really big record with a guy called Phil Kelsey, who was one of the young guys in the studios at the time. Now it was still, it was on the cusp between um, a Megamix brand and the beginnings of what they were gonna come into. And because Phil had had this big record, they realised there was also mileage in creating remixes of classic tracks. And they would use a, a, a kind of um, an umbrella of great producers, young kids that were in there at the time, um, to create these remixes. And then they would be able to dub these onto the vinyl that, that would then go out to the subscription service DJs. And this meant exclusive remixes. And they had great relationships. Tony Prince was a radio DJ. Um, and that means they had great relationship with... Um, uh, the record companies. So as I walked into this place, we were there as stress the label. We didn't realize about the whole machinery behind DMC at the time. Um, I think some of the, a lot of the guys in, in the Delorme act that I was engineering for uh, as we went in, they, they'd heard of it and they had a couple of them, but I don't think they actually subscribed at the time. But there was this whole network of DJs in all of the kind of what I suppose that were the end of the Mecca Club era um, up and down the country. So they had a massive subscription service, and because of that, it became really useful for the record companies to use DMC as an almost additional promo service. DMC didn't pay the remixes very much to actually do it, 
Um, but the great thing was you got your hands on all these bits and pieces. So and it, long, long story short, I ended up getting a job there. I, I say job, I was self-employed effectively still, but um, working in there most days. And I'd never seen such a turn turnaround or, or, or throughput of amazing multi-tracks in my entire life. They had a Saturn 824 machine in there, 24 track tape. And one of my jobs was to take all of the remix parts off and put them onto DAP and send off to the different producers. Oh, cool. Because it was all sampled. There was no multi-track and you couldn't put a multi-track in a computer then. Everyone was still using Atari ST and either Cubase or Notator and Creator on it. This is even before Logic came about for the, for the Atari. Um, so everything had to be put down to DAP. People would then sample it off into Akai samplers normally, chop it all up. It was such a job to ingest the track. It would take you more than half a morning to even get it in, save it all off onto floppy disks and all this stuff. Mm. But you'd basically then start to resequence these records and put your own take on it. And it was coinciding with the beginnings of the explosion of home productions and the bedroom producer. You still had to have a lot of equipment for mixing desk effects and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean, if I think about now, the, what I was exposed to, I remember they had um, Mike Gray and John Pan at the time were in an act then called Hustlers Convention that went on to be full intention. Of course, Mike Gray and John Pan have gone on to do lots of other stuff then. But because they were the disco end of the releases, they managed to get their hands on the chic multi-tracks. Oh, wow. And I remember being tasked with, okay, here's three chic multi-tracks. You've got to get those bits off by the morning. So I didn't have much time with them, unfortunately. But I still remember they were 16 track recordings direct from the power station recorded by Bob Clear Mountain. And it's the sheet, guys. And you put this thing up. And normally, um, records on multi track were a bit all over the place. You're in the era, era of SSL computer mixes, so lots of mutes on the desk and arrangements done that way. But I remember that one coming in for the first time where it was literally you put the. Um, the faders up for the drums there wasn't many of them that's the drums and you're like man that's the record then you put the claps up oh okay and then you go and then it's bernard edwards comes up and you're like oh my god oh my god and then the strings in stereo the bvs and vocals in stereo uh, the piano in stereo i think that was it that was a pretty much a 16 track multi and you've pretty much got the faders at zero i think bob clear mountain used to mix to zero as they as they called and i was just like this is unbelievable the work and the skill that that's taken, not only from a playing point of view, mm. but from an absolute engineering perfection point of view, is astronomical. And I was taken from that point, and then I think I saw some seal multi-tracks. I got to saw, I got to see how Trevor Horn's productions were put together. Uh, God, the, the list goes on. It was loads of them. We had like the Pretenders. Um, Echo and the Bunny Men. Um, I always remember someone got very excited when finally Brothers and Rhythm were there at the time. So this is my dear friend Steve Anderson and um, Dave Seaman, um, who was heading up Mixmag at the time uh, from the central offices up above us. Um, and he and Steve were in this act called Brothers and Rhythm that were the cream of the crop at the time. They were killing it on the remix front. I mean, mm -hmm. they were the guys. And every now and again, they would still come back and do a DMC mix. They would, um, you know, they were on big budgets, but every now and again they'd come and do one. And I remember everybody gathering round, and Steve said, "But you've got to come and listen to this." And they had "Here Comes the Rain Again" multi-track by the Eurythmics, mm. and I was like, "What? They put the delays to tape?" And it's like, "Yeah, it's just decision made. Move on." Um, and some of the things of that was really rubbed off on me. The what I saw on those multi-tracks, and because then you see the chaotic ones, and one of them. Was Massive Attack Unfinished Sympathy. Oh my god, what a mess that multi track was because all of the scratchings on there 
uh, and all of the crazy stuff is on there as well as the main beats and all the rest of it. You're like trying to piece together what was, and you hear someone lining a record up, and of course it was all completely running, typical Nelly Hooper style. It was all running on the desk on mutes uh, see, on the right. SSL, so, so everything was automated. So, so yeah, they weren't playing genuine. back all that chaos. It was always, but they recorded everything to it just in case it was kind of useful. But it was all over the fucking shop. Yeah, I mean, you can see that being an exciting way of putting a mix together, but also um, from a professional point of view, probably. Um, no, but it worked for them. That's organ- what, yeah. yeah, it, yeah and yeah, also, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, and but then you put those strings up. Oh my God. Oh. It is an incredible track still now. You did some really some huge re- remixes for DMC, and you discovered that you had quite a big American following from some of the remixes that you were doing. For yeah, DMC. so I was lucky enough to. Um, I, I was in there as an engineer for other people originally, and I always, you know, you always have, you always want to get on with your own stuff. But I was quite shy and retiring at the time, so they kind of forced me to do it, and I was so pleased someone did, and I was like, great, okay. So I started off doing my own set of remixes, and I think the biggest one that I did initially was I Don't Want a Lover by Texas and my god was that record meant to turn into a dance track it, it, even though it's blues effectively it's just it worked like a treat man and suddenly I, I saw all the reactions upstairs Pete from the he's from, he from Birmingham he used to do all the returns from the DJs but it's a great big stack of paper on his desk James you better come up and have a look at this and the return, and, so the returns is where they're marking like, yeah and they, the they had to do like. it yeah so it was the beginning ah. of DJ reactions so this was before all the promotion companies even really existed they were just starting at that time but they had their own feedback system so they could see what was what was going on and that helped them make the decisions about what remixes to put on the records yeah because you find then, that sometimes when you buy second hand records you've got yeah, this thing that's like thing in the middle. please send this off to Donald at da, 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 da. Yeah, yeah, what yeah. did the crowd like it did but you it was like all it physical. where did you put it in your mix and like just tick box yeah. things so it was either physical or the bigger DJs that had access to maybe the nightclubs fax machine would fax them in so it was this horrendous collection of paper and he, he would have to count them all up the poor bugger and that one he called me up and said right you've, you've nailed it you, you know this is starting to go um, and because of that it gave me impetus to be able to then demand some bigger artists for the thing because it was still a bit of a you know they, they weren't getting these record the, the multi-tracks every time they had to go and ask for them and some people were like no nah, you ain't touching that but um, and then I started off the back of that I got um, a, so a manager came into the company that at DMC. He used to work in New York, and I got a couple of big remixes myself. Now, before that, I was working heavily with two lovely DJs called Chris and James, uh, who were the central DJs from the um, uh, Gardening Club that we mentioned earlier. And they we did a ton of remixes together, and I loved it. But I, I always wanted to do my own thing. And one of the first ones was with a band called that were still active on Sony at the time called Sunscreen. Sunscreen, yeah, I do remember. And they did a track uh, called uh, Looking At You. And I still remember the call that someone said, oh, do you want to do this? And I listened to it. I was like, oh, it's major key, but oh, it's really good. And it had this amazing cello part on it. And I was like, so where's the cello from? Um, and it was really rhythmical. And as it turned out, the uh, I didn't realise this, the singer in Sunscreen was a brilliant cellist. And she was, uh, uh, on so many of the, of the later recordings, she was actually playing this instrument in such a manner. It really had passion to it. Anyway, I loved it. So I said, yeah, I'll try it. And I still remember every now and again, you get these pieces of music that just fall together. They just everything goes in the right direction. Mm-hmm. It is literally meant to be. And I, I had my friend Alan was popping in and out, who also worked in the studio. And within 
I, I'd knocked up the basic idea of it within four hours, which at the time, you know, with all the sampling as well, I had the, oh, wow. the, the main space sound, the lead sounds and all the rest of it, and this amazing cello all sequenced. And I, I was like, I've got it, I know what to do. And this is where being musical really helps. There's some chord changes in that, that if you don't know what you're doing and you only know minor keys, because that's really what dance music is, you're screwed, you're not gonna be able to put that together. Um, but I knew how that was working and I knew the trick so I was able to program around it because sometimes even now you hear some dreadful things where there's this key clash because someone hasn't worked out oh it's stepped into major for that moment but you're still playing the minor note that's oh, not going to work yeah you did mention that I think with, in, with Steve Anderson with, uh, you, you were on his podcast such a good feeling and you said about um doing some of the other the bit the, the big remixes and like for example the faith evans track wasn't that in minor or in uh, major in major and you and you, but you knew that you could put in some interesting melodic things to, to switch it yeah well it's there is a way of playing major so keyboards anything in a major key on a keyboard sounds two up unless you know how to make it sound really vintage and then it could sound solely could sound like vintage soul or it could even sound like motown stuff and also, even if it is major, let the vocal do all the major notes and you play fifths. So in other words, you never play the third note that will denote that chord into be a major. So if you're playing the fifths, then it sounds quite rocky and it gets cooler. And I tell you who's always done a bit of this, that's Fatboy Slim, even in the samples that he's taken. Mm -hmm. it's, a lot of it's major key, but it's that cool end of major key. Uh, it's almost like guitars on major sound quite chunky and quite right, but keyboard sounds can sound too. Ta-da! Yeah, I think I've we've just heard lots that. of piano things. So you can, there that. are ways to get around it. And one thing is to just never play the major. Just always play. If you need to keep another note in there to fatten the chords up, you can always play a sus two or a sus four. So in other words, take the the third note of a triad. Say it's C major. So it's C, E, and uh, G for the uh, the actual major triad. So you could just play C and G the whole time. And if you wanted to throw another note in there, play the F, because the F is in a minor key, as well as the major key. The moment you play the E, you're saying, da-da, there we go. So you just stay, pardon me, stay off it, stay yeah. away from it. I definitely found in. that in like going, right, well the fifth, the fifth works with this, but the actual, the, the triad doesn't. I remember like I've sat there and gone like, why does the fifth sound great? And then the triad sounds shit and I've never like... Yeah, and there is a little oddity with all major and minor scales. They are semi-interchangeable. Um, and uh, for example, you can hit the, uh, the flat seven. So you can hit the seven that would occur on a minor key. And mm. then you'll get, even if you play a full uh, my, a major triad underneath it, the flat seven will sound cool, and it will be kind of in with the minor key, but it's a uh, it's a dominant seventh. It's quite a serious, serious thing. That's great, man. And I have to say, like, your remix of uh, Texas, I Don't Want a Lover, I remember listening to when I was a kid. Because we, do you remember the radio station Atlantic 252? Yeah, God. So it was like an, a US station that transmitted yeah. on, on long wave. So it sounded like shit. But me, my sister got me into it. And we used to listen to Atlantic 252 because it was all the cool stuff that was playing in America that wasn't on the British radio. Yeah. And when I was looking through your discogs and I saw 
you did a remix. So it was was it Jimmy? Was it Jimmy Jim Gomez? Gomez? Jimmy yeah, Gomez yeah, yeah. remix. Yeah, your sort of earlier alias. Um, yeah, I remember. I looked and, and and listened to that track, and I was like, oh my god! I remember being a child in the car listening to Atlantic oh, Two Point Two and hearing that, and and I've always connected to that track. I don't want to love. I'm gone. I swear there was another version of it than, <laughs> than the pop one, and now I found out. Yeah, no, no, it's worse. So it was <laughs> DMC had a US office, so they were distributing same same rule as well, only to DJ. So it wasn't a mass market thing um but the the sunscreen mix i did they had a, it, it it took off on what's known as the circuit scene in in america and the circuit scene um were the uh, lgbt plus communities um parties that would literally they had a whole circuit almost around america around all the big cities um and it was i had no idea that this even existed the only thing we knew at the time is dance music had not really taken off and there was a i would say at the time in america there was a great deal of homophobia going on which is i think was why sometimes it didn't really connect because let's face it disco and dance music its natural habitat is pretty much in the gay clubs that's where uh, it all of this music really really came from and the, those clubs were a fantastic melting pot of personalities and talent and um and want for brighter things shall we say so it was you know we're all standing on the giants that created or we're all standing on the shoulders of the giants that created the stuff from from that era and then this weird thing started happening particularly with that um uh, sunscreen mix is that djs were phoning up from america from these circuit parties and talking to me they tracked me down and i'm like okay that's dedicated for a start and the one i always remember Unfortunately, uh, he, uh, he he passed. He was a, a glass sculptor in a, in wow. LA called Seth, and he would phone up, and we'd be on the phone for hours because he was doing a creative endeavour. Uh, I would be in the studio, and he'd be like, "Oh, what you're working on?" And we'd talk about music constantly and things like that. And these guys uh, were in this amazing community that had these phenomenal parties, an entire subculture going on um, that. And the mixes I were doing, because they were so musical and vocal, um, went, uh, I had so much more legs. And that particular, that sunscreen one was enormous in that scene. I had no idea about yeah. it until I spoke to Paul and uh, uh, the singer from uh, Sunscreen about it later on. That it's uh, like they, the they told me how big it was. I'm like, you're kidding. He said, no, 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 we used to PA it for, you know, we did the whole, we, we would... It, it was a major thing and I had no idea about it, but it was lovely to hear it from the actual people that were experiencing it. That, that it affected them so much they decided to actually phone an English number and be on the phone for half an hour. Yeah, it was like, just wonderful. That's incredible to like show that gratitude, isn't it? You, yeah. You, you realise how ace that party must have been that they're like yeah, a week later phoning up the guy who, the, who played made that one, one of the, track. Yeah, who made the one track that everybody was... <laughs> Was, had a moment to uh, at that particular time and then yeah. the other remixes I was doing at DMC got into you know they were searching them out in that thing and I still when we when Russell and I were touring America later on people would grab me and sit me down and go I just want to say you know what you did back then I, it will always stay with me yeah and it, it I think that's yeah what I didn't realize is as well it, it was punctuating an incredibly sad time for that community and we didn't understand until the very first lovely guy who booked us in New York and we went there for the first time and it was on it was it was a circuit party that was on one of the islands just off uh, New York uh, off Manhattan sorry and um, 
we really got to know him over the days because he was a very generous guy who wanted to show us around. He wasn't his main job. He was a, um, I think he was in the city at some point. A lot of these guys had these amazing jobs, and this was their kind of their their relaxing time. It was a, it was an enormous social thing. But of course, AIDS had devastated the communities in the cities in America, really devastated. And uh, it was only when I talked to him that I really, really worked out the loss. I mean, we can't imagine loss on that scale. In fact, we probably can now because of what's just happened with the pandemic. But that was the previous pandemic, hmm. and it just wasn't given the media coverage. Yeah, it was, it was horrendous. Sort of an the, underground version. Yeah, and the it, people that they lost. These, how many creative souls did we lose through that? It just doesn't even bear thinking about. Hmm. You know, these wonderful, colourful people that were just literally there one minute and not the next. Yeah, it was. It was a it, real thing of poignancy so when I now look back about these conversations that I um, have with or had with these guys sadly I know two of them aren't alive anymore so it's it's a real grounding in just how fragile life can be and how when good things are happening don't get too worried about oh the next step or just when the good shit's there just take it in be present, exactly what we were saying before. Be there. Be there for the moment and go, okay, this is fantastic. Let's just drink it all in because, you know, our human brains and bodies are hardwired for it not to happen all the time. Yeah. So you've got to take it whilst it's there. Definitely. Embrace all of it um, and always remember it. Yeah. That was what Fiona Bryce, uh, the, the woman I spoke to last, the arranger, um, her, her mantra was, don't forget to enjoy it. Yeah, because it's so easy it's to so just get easy, stressed yeah. and just and not just go. Hold on a minute, this is an amazing situation I'm in, yeah. and um, yeah. But I mean, you talked about the fact that they phone up and they sort of had a moment. You know, they they had that moment in the club, and I think you you whittled down what the Freemasons was all about with a like a moment thing, wasn't it? The, oh yeah, no, I well, it was almost like a cliche we had in the interview circuits at the time because you'd often get asked the what, what what's the Freemason sound, and for me. And I still say this to this day, <clears throat> we were all about the right chord at the right point with a searing vocal. Just, you know, the, the vocals going somewhere, we find the exact right chord to go underneath it and then it's the movement. It's the, That's the bit when the, the bar line hits and then there's a big note going over the top of it and the right chord change. That was what we were about. It was, um, we got away <laughs> with more music than anybody else around that time. Uh, it, it was just, I suppose we were having fun. Both Russell and I loved disco and loved where it was coming from and being able to meld it all in. And, you know, we were then getting hit up. We did all of the big remixes and all of the big projects that come your way. Um, and the funny thing is you're just not... Um, you're not prepared for how quickly all of that arrives. Nobody is, I don't think. Mm. I think some are more mentally prepared than others, but we, we certainly weren't. <laughs> I think it, yeah. I think for different people, the 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 rise, the rise. It's it's a some like obviously nowadays with with television programs and things, people can meteorically rise up very quickly. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I think for 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 different people, it's um, it it can be a different thing. But yeah, I mean, you went on from doing Faith Evans in two thousand and five to like next year remixing for Beyonce, and having your tracks, uh, not only become huge but actually replacing the original. Yes. Well, no, that was bizarre. And I still remember the first time it happened. I'm like, you what? They've done what? And they said, well, you remember the radio edit of Beyonce Deja Vu? Yeah. Well, Radio One are playing it. 
And I'm like, what? Now, Radio 1 at the time were testing, but just beginning testing. So they were taking things out to um, uh, focus groups, effectively, of their actual listenership. And they were finding out what people really liked. Um, now, that's a different ball game this this time for reasons we'll come on to later on. Um, that's a bit that data is a bit more easily accessible. But I think what had happened is R and B had stagnated a little bit um, in the terms of its European appreciation. Not in America, still absolutely huge, and probably in South America as well. But we had a, another sort of dance explosion happening in the UK, and particularly in Europe. And I think what had happened is the original R and B versions hadn't tested well. And this was, a, you know, this was a, 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 a major new album release for. It was the lead single on the. Um, Deja Vu the album I think it was it was like okay that's the, the the track wasn't working but they had this other version that you know and because Russell and I were so intent on making sure the vocals sounded great and the grooves were great it was almost perfect for our stuff to be edited down to radio and we both really enjoyed doing radio edits it was like a game we were like right can this happen can we get this club Squeeze mixed down all, you get all those ideas all into in a bit can we do yeah. it now the great thing was we'd sped up an R&B record nearly every single time so that meant the timing worked so it was a little bit of luck we were always able to get it under 3.30 yeah. I, loved, I loved what you said as well because you do go into detail a little bit of the production process when you talk to Steve Anderson and I loved what you said about the vibrato of uh, Beyonce's voice that like it was you, all, you, you, timed, you pitched it all up to, to fit in, but the, her vibrato, you you manually edited. Yeah, no. The reason being, well, if you can imagine hitting. a vibrato, we've all heard it when you time stretch a vocal. If someone's got a vibrato on it, it will sound like a chipmunk when it's sped up. Yeah. And particularly it's Deja Vu, the first one was quite a speed up. You can go back and check the original. You can see the, the uh, we went about 127, 126, I think. Um, and we played the vocal back. It's like, oh no, we can't get away with this. And some of the sustained notes. Every time there was a vibrato, and she's got a brilliant natural vibrato in her voice. She's gifted. Mm. Um, it's one of her amazing vocal gifts. And it was not gonna. We were not gonna get away with that. So we actually yeah, went in line for line and got the original. And it's like you know, it's a much longer looking thing. And it, oh my god, I can't tell you the amount of time it took. It took probably a day and a half just to get, maybe two days to get. The vibrato's edited back in so that the vocal sounded passable. Yeah, and you were Grammy nominated for that for that for that moment. mix. Yeah, for Deja Vu, the first one we did. A, we did three more. Um, the one, uh, the one we couldn't do. I was gutted, absolutely gutted. With single ladies, it just didn't work. And I'm so glad we didn't to a degree. I'm pissed off that we didn't because we would have kept on going in that traje trajectory. And I remember having to write their management this big email, which they probably didn't even read. They just went, "Oh, they're not going to do it." Mm. Um, but they, uh, it was, it just didn't stretch. And then when we heard the other house mixes, we're like, "Told you." Yeah, it was. Not, I don't remember hearing work. any house mixes. No, that, well, the only thing we could have done was maybe do a slowdown in the middle. But I think we'd already done two of those by that point, and it was like, can't really do another one for that. Yeah, I mean, um, you write about it being really happy, uplifting music. Um, you know, the Freemason stuff that you did uh, with with Russell, and but also beyond that, in um, the F nine stuff you're doing now, like. Uh, I love your I love your your the remixes that you've done for oh, F9 brilliant. like uh, I'm a huge fan and and for me there are those moments of the chord change hitting with the vocal um like the Molly Hammer remix you did of words there's a bit where it drops down and it's not really very prominent the chord the chord in the background is like a passing chord 
but that hits so well. I mean, maybe just for me personally in my particular ears. Yeah, no, exactly. There's something and, 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 in yeah, that. I really appreciate. Well, now this, now this is really where I take. Um, I have to say that I think some level, maybe not musical training, but musical practice, is absolutely vital because that what you're describing there is an emotional hit. And one of the reasons I know that I'm good with chords is that I'm over-emotional. So basically, I feel what most people are going to feel heightened, I would say. And that means that you become addicted, as we said, to your emotional states. I am addicted to those moments. Where you, and I will always try and find those things where if you can... Is there a way of putting some chords around that that aren't from the original that will elevate that piece mm. and make it make what they're saying more important hammer homes the rhythms of it make it sound funkier make it sound better can you get it can you improve it can you can you do that and that's the great thing about remixing you can you can chuck it all out the old days of remixing were you were handed the multi-track you basically might sync a drum machine up to it and then you're going to rejiggle it but you are using all of the material now yeah. you can just strip it back down to the vocal or some core bits and off you go and i think that's what we did with all of the beyonce things i don't think we used a single part of the original multi-track we just completely restarted it which is why they took so fucking long <laughs> i mean i'm glad they did so well because it took huge quantities of our life i think each one minimum was three weeks and you know when i say this to other people now i remember we got the call after the second one i think we did ring the alarm which didn't annoyingly become a single hit because our mix of that was probably the best one we did out of all of that batch just wonderful uh, i loved every single minute of it and still do mm. Um, and we got a call from the management saying, can you remix the whole album? And I, I remember going in to work. Now, I now know that sometimes industry people say things before they've actually discussed it with everybody. <laughs> yeah. They were so excited over this second mix. <laughs> this lovely guy who was dealing with us went, can you remix the whole album? And I remember going into work and freaking going, how the fuck are we going to do that? It takes us three weeks to do one. Why are we going to do 12 tracks? It's just not going to happen. I actually nearly offered to remix the whole album for someone recently. Oh, did you? Yeah, don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. Don't ever do it. Because <laughs> yeah. I cannot tell you the work it's going to take. It's um, isn't it? So we, uh, anyway, At we, least we got around that. But it was just... Yeah, it's um, phenomenal amounts of time that we used to spend on these things. But letting you look at the results, you're like, that's why. sometimes put the hours in which is again why I take exception sometimes for people trying to find a magic bullet it's like right I'm going to become a remixer so I'm going to rip some acapellas why why am I not a famous remixer I've got them up on SoundCloud it's like well a you haven't got permission to do the remixes so no one's you can only go so far with that and b don't just remix somebody else's stuff make some original tracks mm. if you want a sample sampling's still viable it can still be cleared if you can find the right things and here's a tip for everybody out there bmg own the sow soul catalog there you go they have a dance department a lovely chap called matt king's running that so they are looking to find ways of using all of this catalog. They didn't just buy it for it to sit there. Hi. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. So basically, if you you know find out where all of this old catalog that you might be interested in sampling lies, and see if they have a club department. See if there's someone who's been encouraged by their business affairs to actually, you know, use this stuff. 
And um, how and how would you go about? Let's say you do you do want to. What sort of terms would come with it, and how would you? Ah, pretty shocking from an actual uh, business point of view. If you look, if you take a big lump of somebody else's record these days, you ain't going to be able to get away with much. You're going to be cut down on your mechanical royalties, and you're going to be cut down on your, but your publishing will just be decimated. But should that propel you, and I can tell you this from complete experience, because our first record was one, well, it was a cut and shut, as Russell I always said. It's, a, <laughs> it's basically a South Soul disco record with a Tina Turner acapella on, on the top. Yeah, I love that story of how that came about, the melding of two different tracks. Well, I can tell you exactly how so it came brilliant. about. We bought an acapella a DVD off eBay. Yeah. I mean, you can't get more dodgy than that if you, <laughs> when you think about it. But we cleared everything properly. And we, uh, Amanda Wilson, lovely Amanda Wilson, resung the vocals. Who you heard in a karaoke bar yep, yeah. somewhere. Oh, no, actually, we didn't. Somebody else did. So really, yeah, <laughs> yes. well. But it was, oh, yeah, it was properly funny. But she's a great man. She's, oh, she's just got the, she's got the vocal, again, that people just love to hear. Uh, yeah, she sang on the same, on the first Avicii record before he was Avicii. Oh, wow, really? Oh. Yeah. Uh, I've forgotten what them. What was his other artist's name? That's terrible. I don't know. I, I still can't spell Avicii, to be honest. I'm still working out how that's spelled properly. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's a Thai word, isn't it? It means something. I can't quite remember. Oh, is it? Oh. Yeah, I think it means oh, paradise in, in one of the... Maybe it's the Hindu languages, something like that. The funny thing is with that as well, um, the guy who wrote the Tina Turner record it popped up on our radar. Guess who it was? It was the singer oh, right. from the Nightcrawlers. Right, wow. John Reed. We were like, this is fantastic. Brilliant guy, from a Scottish guy, absolutely hilarious. As <laughs> uh, just yeah, he can, can do the best impressions of anybody you've ever met. Really? Oh yeah, he's hilarious. Um, That's good. Yeah, really good chap. He's active again at the moment. He's doing some great stuff back with the Nightcrawlers, and obviously, his big hit was the one um, that Mark Kitchen had remixed, MK had remixed. Um, yeah, you were talking uh, push about... Push the feeling on. Yeah, I think you mentioned bam, 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 that. Bam, 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 ooh, give me eyes, something you give me eyes. So poor old John's, when he was peeing that back at, PAing that back in the day, had to sing the vocal chop. What, to like... Yeah, because Mark Kitchen it, had that it. thing of chopping all the vocals up, mm -hmm. which is what he'd done to John's vocal, and that was predominantly one of the major hooks in it. So John, when he was PAing it back in the 90s, had to learn how to do that. He's got some <laughs> hilarious stories about that. Two, I guess two things I want to say, uh, and, and one of them is like a very sort of self-interested one, but it's an interesting observation, is that if I look back through the tracks that I've made over the years, some of the best tracks is when I've used an a cappella and built a track around the a cappella. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really interesting. Like, the theme tune of this podcast is actually a remix that I did years ago of an Ellie Golding track, but I've just removed the Ellie Golding vocal, and I have this actually really nice, slightly professional-sounding track. So, it's, yeah, it is interesting that that well, you know that's how Mark Ronson works. you. So Mark is Ronson it? will basically take a track, build stuff around it, Take a track he loves, put it in, and then affect it. Well, it's not all the time, obviously, but then he strips everything back, and then eventually the original's gone. I think that's. But he's used it as scaffolding. I, need to do. I think that's what I need. To I do. think everybody needs to do. <laughs> I mean, look, I, I just did a video on YouTube uh, where I'm using RX eight and nine will do it as well to use their music rebalance, and it's a workflow of how you can strip the drums out of any track, and then put them on your page in time, so that then you can build drums around a track that you love. Oh, I mean, amazing. who would not want to be doing that? Reprogramming the drums on one of your favourite records. But then you can yeah. just hit mute, that track's gone, and you've got some great drums. Yeah, I absolutely do love your F9 remixes. There's, there's, there's ones you've done with uh, Lanis Morissette. 
Yes, uh, Will was, Young as yeah. well. You've done. Um, I would urge people to check out your F9 movies because I I still listen to them on a weekly and daily well, basis. Well, my favourite one is a girl called Eden. Yes, I absolutely love that because I loved her song. I have no idea why she's not killing it in from an artist point of view at the moment. Hopefully, she's coming through because um, I I just love what she was doing and it, it was so inspiring. Inspiring that I I said to management, look, tell her I'm going to do a kind of '80s thing because that was all on the cusp at the time. And of course, you know, me doing '80s stuff is just me reliving my childhood basically. <laughs> And then I got, I was like, I got this, you know, electric funk bass sound. I'm like, right, okay, we're going to go for this. And I did it. I was like, oh man, it's so much fun to play. I just remember doing the bass lines again and again, just because it was so much fun. Yeah. Um, but have the, it all, isn't it? Have it all. Yeah. Mix. Yeah, yeah. I think my neighbours must have heard that so many times. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it was just one of those things that well. you can tell the enjoyment, can't you? You can tell the, the, the fun of it that's, yeah. that's, that's happening within it. Uh, but look, I must admit, I've actually stopped remixing now because um, during COVID, my wife was made redundant and I had two options towards the end of it. F9 was still going on as a, uh, as a sound design company after the initial big splurge of releases. And then as COVID had hit, I kind of, just before that, had plugged myself back into the main part of the industry. But then after the, f- uh, in the during the second major lockdown, I had this, uh, you know, I was in the industry working, but also putting together new F9 releases. And then the universe came in and decided what we were going to do from that moment onwards. Um, they, my wife got made redundant from American Express. It was a massive shock. Uh, and it was just down to COVID, basically. A lot of their public facing cards are um, connected with airlines no one was booking airlines they were probably losing a ton of money or you know earning less money I should say mm. and they had to they basically had a clear out and my wife was unfortunately one of the casualties and we'd just moved to Worthing um, out of Brighton because we had a five-year-old we needed a garden and they're rare as hen's teeth and sorry hen's r- r- yes rare as hen's teeth in Brighton in Brighton yeah so we disappeared out to Worthing you get one paving slab no exactly Um, so you know she was a long way away from anything else connected with that kind of industry Um, and I said look this could be an absolute blessing because I need help if I'm gonna you know if if I'm gonna carry on with the sound design stuff well actually more more it was it was initially an, an almost necessity but I still remember my thought process going brilliant we could just do this because one of the things we were up against was her family time around the holidays Mm. She just would not, because she was external from the company, get into the kind of winner-takes-all situation with the holiday booking system. So it was looking like I was going to have to cover all of the holidays with our little girl. Uh, That was going to knock me out for up to 13 weeks a year. And then we said, well, look, this could solve everything and then also create an environment where we can move F9 forward because there's only so far I can take it with just me doing all of this stuff. If she comes on board... um, and helps me out there. We can start to build this into a proper company. It's already a uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's no, fantastic it's, it's, already. And well, I know, but here's the thing: how, people don't like... understand quite how small it is. A lot of it is just me. I mean, you see that some of those early front-facing videos. I was running backwards and forwards to the camera to turn the damn thing on and off. It's a bloody nightmare. Yeah. It used to be so stressful at the beginning to get everything done, and of course nobody's sure of a new company when you start. So it takes a long time to build up the. Um, uh, the, the the safety net of people trusting you, people understanding that they're going to get a good deal from you, which yeah. is what it's always been about. There is, there is an interesting story about an avocado on the uh, Steve on the oh yeah Steve, yeah no, which I, people can yeah. which people can listen to there. But um, yeah, starting up a company is um, yeah, is a bit glass. of a formidable thing. 
Um, but you, yeah, you talked about the sample packs being like remix production quality or production quality. Uh, yeah, sample yeah, yeah. And yours are known. I mean, I worked at Loop Masters, and even though in those days, I knew that there were sample packs, and then there was the F9 sample packs, and it clearly within yeah within within a few moments of listening to your demos, or opening up the Ableton projects, you can see that there's an incredible amount of talent and detail and passage of knowledge within yeah, them. that's the thing like, yeah. i don't think uh, the, the thing i always tell people about your like f9 is that i didn't realize how good my speakers sounded until i played an ableton oh, session fantastic. of yours and i was like oh my god th these speakers are amazing well that's yeah, that's <laughs> like, again that's, are, that's really just good. graft that's knowledge <laughs> that i picked up over 25 years of doing it and now I've got this wonderful ability to be able to get this stuff out and I love it and so now my wife's coming on board with the company and we made this decision I was like right that's it I've got to lose the mainstream industry you can only do one or the other you can't do both and the trouble is with the mainstream industry at my age it can become problematic just because of the way it's set up and the way streaming works and the age groups and all the rest of it and the way the media promotion works yeah. um, with this I can get back to a retail model and I'll talk about that in a minute because this is quite important I think for everybody to understand where we are in music and where you can fit in. But there's one thing that I need to make clear is I did it initially out of necessity because the Freemasons project was on the beginning of its downward arc uh, and that's natural, that's always going to happen no matter how successful you become there will come a point where you won't be as successful as you were, it's just natural man, mm. you, it will happen with everybody. And we'd done about 12 years of really good stuff. It had been amazing, but it became pretty apparent to me that eventually everything was going to change. I couldn't DJ at the time because I damaged my ears a bit in Croatia. And Russell has always been a DJ and wanted to carry that on. So we had to split. We had to leave. It was a tough time because you've you know you spent a lot of time together. It's like getting a divorce. It's pretty horrid. Yeah. To be fair. Um, but w I've always wanted to do the studio side of things. So then, actually, F9 was two parts. I'd missed the boat. I'd done something within the Freemasons, past all these big remixes that I'd promised myself as a younger producer, because I'd seen so many people do this I wouldn't do, and that is I didn't take notice of what was changing and the new music that was coming in. And I didn't take notice of Electro because I didn't like it, and I didn't take notice when EDM hit because I didn't like it. Mm. And that is one of the most foolish things I've ever done in my life because we could not continue at the would level it, that we were. Would it have been foolish if you didn't like it, if you weren't really feeling it? Do you still feel like that was a It depends how you look thing? at it. In other words, could we have carried it on? Yeah, we could have done. We could have just, as every producer that we knew did, if you look back at people's, you look at Axwell's releases in the Funky House era, and then you look at what he was doing with the Swedish House Mafia, the two things could, there was a continuity, but they were very different things. Yeah. Now, that, that was natural for them. They liked all of that stuff as well, but I didn't. I just didn't get it. it for me, it was going backwards. It was rave uh, of just noise, sound systems. But that's me being silly because I wasn't out there experiencing. I was getting older. Mm -hmm. I was settling down. We were planning a family and I wasn't expecting, I wasn't out there finding out what the youth were doing, which is having the time of their fucking lives to this music at the big festivals. Yeah. A big foolish moment. And you have to keep your eye on what's coming. And the other thing that I learned from that is that it's possible to cherry pick. But most importantly... The one thing that I really screwed up on was I was still trying to use the same old drum sounds that I was using in the Freemasons days and all the sonics had changed. 
the subs involved in music at that point. Computer mixing had really come of age. DAWs were starting to get incredibly powerful. And it was like an extra octave of sub information had been suddenly put onto the kicks and the basses. And I wasn't there by a million miles. Mm. And it was the friends I mentioned earlier, Kevin and Cass at Wired, when we put some stuff through them. Kevin, I remember distinctly Kevin phoning up and going, you can't do this. I'm like, what do you mean? He said, your drums are terrible. They're just not what's going on. This is what's going on. And he, he really talked me all through it. And from that point, now this is when you, I can remember the hives coming up around it at that time as well. You, know, you feel your whole neck going up. It's like, yeah. man, you've screwed up. Now, here's the thing. When that happens, what are you really worried about? Because I can look at back at this moment now and know exactly it was horrible at the time. You're really worried about what everybody's going to think. No one gives a toss. Yeah. Everybody makes these mistakes. And it, it, it's such a big thing when these things happen. You're like, oh, my God, I've really screwed up. And it's like, I remember speaking to my wife about it and going, like, I hope you don't think wrong of me. Or I hope you don't think I've failed and things like that. She's like, what are you fucking talking about? Yeah. What are you fucking talking about? I but think yeah. it's just important to understand that everybody feels these kind of things, particularly in creative times. But mm-hmm. the great thing is with F9, I could then go and investigate it all. I had, and it, it was, now let me get this straight, Within it launched in May, it was profitable in June, I think, and was starting to pay back some of the money that I'd actually put into it. Nice. So that means it was able to keep the studio going. It was able to pay me a bit, not not much. It, it didn't make a lot of money at the beginning because nobody knew really what it was. But it was able to keep everything going. And from that, I was like, well, this is fantastic. So I've created an income stream that means that Russell and I can separate. I don't have to do the panicky thing that we see everybody else doing. I've got to find other work, I've got to do this. Yeah. Um, and I'm investigating all of this Sonic stuff and getting better at that. And then what I had no idea about, as I said earlier, is that I had no idea how nice the feedback was going to be, how much you can help people, how much you can make their lives better, and that makes you that gives you an incredible purpose. Absolutely, and I think there's there's a there's um there's a parallel uh, experience that you had with your multi tracks, the Seal multi tracks and the Chic multi tracks coming in, and other people loading up an F9 audio sample pack in their door and going. Now that's a fucking drum beat. <laughs> yeah, but also that's a technique. Oh, so that's what it should sound. I think no, this is really important. So Kevin from Wired, when I was making all these mistakes with the drums, he went, right, I'm going to send you some kick drums. He said, this is what modern kick drums sound like. And I remember putting them on going, fuck. And I'm putting mine up going, oh my God, well, no fucking wonder. And I was like, well, that's... Now here's the thing I learned, because as I said, I was always interested in the top, the melodies and all the rest of it. This is when I went, you've got to properly start concentrating on this and really, really work at it. Uh, because the moment I started working with some of those kick drums, I'm like, why is this a million t- literally a million times easier? Why can I put, why am I getting this sound that I've always wanted quickly? And it's because I was using those kick drums. Do you have like extra space in the mix? N- n- well, no, I tell you what, so it? basically if your kick hits the way it should do for a particular genre every single decision you make up from that point is solid because you have this framework so imagine it like building a house so think of your base end as the foundations of a house if you build a house up just on plain earth someone can literally put a foot on it and kick one wall in or or any movement within the land and that's it it's just going to fall to bits if you build on solid foundations your house is sound and it sounds like a cheesy analogy, but honestly, it's a good it's analogy. True. No, I, I cannot tell you how much the kick in any single genre of music will influence every single other decision that you will make. 
And that's why it's absolutely vital to make sure your drum sounds are exactly right for the genre that you're working in, particularly your kick, because everything is sub-heavy at the moment and you, everybody wants to chase that big professional sound of that big warm bass but sparkling tops or nice warm mids and all that kind of stuff. It is all in the bass end, but you cannot get your bass sound right, and this is what my problem was, you can never get your bass sound right if your kick is weak. Yeah, yeah. It has to, the two have to work together. Mm. And now we're at a point now, uh, and I've, I've had this conversation with many people, that drums will age or date a track more than any other elements. Particularly now that there's a cool retro scene on. You can throw anything you want on there, um, <laughs> uh, musically wise, but you know, but, yeah, I always remember when all of the kind of trap stuff was going. Like, oh, we're back to Mellotrons again! Fucking brilliant! <laughs> yeah, that's nice and grainy, all not lo-fi and things like that. But the drums, man, the, the kicks. Yeah. <laughs> Did you meet the guy who the the TR808 drum designer? I, no, I met. Designer. So yeah, I worked Your for. Um, we skipped a bit, and I worked in a major studio in London that was owned by a wonderful Japanese chap called Gota Yashiki. Gota, Gota son. And he was managed by uh, Yoshi at the time, and Yoshi became my manager, and I worked in and out of that studio for a long time. <laughs> and upstairs was a lovely big space that was kind of um, just a social space, but they had a little kitchen unit, and all of the guys loved to cook. Yoshi and Gota-san, he loved to cook. Um, and one night I popped up there, and Gota was like, ah, oh, James, you've got to meet my friend. And I was like, oh, great. And um, he said... Uh, yeah, he's the guy who designed the kick drum circuit for the 808. I'm like, whoa, whoa, what? What? And it's just one of Gota's friends. You know, it's just these amazing engineers. You think about how much they changed music. Yeah. I, I, I was so gobsmacked. I, I just, we basically then, I think we tried to sit and work out what happened if he'd have got one pence for every piece of vinyl and CD that his sound, his sounds were on. Uh, and we we got to I think we worked out he'd be the richest man in the world or something silly like that yeah. on the back of a piece of paper. You know, uh, yeah, exactly. You said you did point out then that it's probably one of the most um, prolifically used instruments of all time, and that's so true. Especially yeah. like no, you say now with with uh, like trap music and the eight oh eight are just such a big part of that. Like even more so now. I mean, he's well, yeah, exponentially it's, it's, richer a, a now. A type of an entire well, instrument, be. which is effectively a sub instrument is now named after a fucking drum machine because that's what the kick drum did. Yeah. And it all started because some producers were taking 808 samples, finding the, the key, because it does have a keyed tone, and then using that to play chromatically um, on top of other kick drums. So it's, it's fascinating that you still turn on the radio today. And yeah, I would say it's on that, you know, if you think about a Stratocaster, it's on a lot of records, awful lot of records. Stratocasters have changed so dramatically in so many different ways, but I would say without a shadow of a doubt, an 808 is on more records than any one instrument. What I see a lot of people, producers, um, looking for most of the time on the internet is actually reassurance. Oh, yeah. When, yeah, when yeah, they're yeah. asking well, forums about how to do things, what they really want is someone to go, go yeah. off and try it and you'll find it. And, and yeah, we, we, yeah, you touched on it there, being like a collective spirit. Um, it's really good for a, like a scene and for, um, yeah, I guess spreading the weight of 
making music between a few people, isn't it? Yes, yeah, spreading the load, and it's human nature, particularly, unfortunately, but it particularly seems to happen with boys to get competitive about all of this stuff and be a bit. Um, and the one thing I can't stand is when you see on on forums some poor guy come in, just ask a question, and they get shouted down by all of the you know newbie and you know what you don't go and ask this, go and read the manual and things like that. And it's like no guys, just go and help the guy. Yeah, because yeah. you were that guy once. Exactly. Everybody had no knowledge at some stage you won't you know you didn't come in with the ability to do 909 snare fills or or you didn't come in with the ability to make growling dubstep bass or something like that yeah, you, those you, emotive chords you're talking about no one just suddenly knows no, how to do no that. you have to experience it and so the best wing thing to do is to elevate people as much as possible and to fucking help out because i tell you what it makes you feel so much better I, I always think with trolls, I just think, my God, they're bitter people. But then I actually think, well, no, they're getting a hit from this. But later on at night, they must go back and be just like, it must eat away at you. Just you must know you've done wrong. Okay, so yeah, this is quite an interesting thing. So um, we used a, you used a metaphor earlier about the house building thing and the foundations. And you also used a metaphor in saying that production is like the punctuation in the sentence. Yeah. So you have your sentence and then the production around it is the um, punctuation. So I was, there was someone posted on, and you see this quite often posted, how do I know when my tracks are finished, right? This yeah, is something yeah. that people post about a lot, okay? So I wrote back in response, how do you know when a conversation's finished? Okay, because there's a lot of parameters that are, sometimes you're time limited in a conversation and it has to end now. Yeah. Same with the track. Have you expressed yourself fully in the track? Have you expressed yourself fully in the conversation? So I just literally put this metaphor as a response in. And some people loved it and were like deep. And then some people like shut some one guy wrote shut the fuck up underneath it. And um and it was one of those things that I mean I'm sort of getting the reaction now where you just you, Yeah, yeah, you feel that body no. boils. Yeah, no, here's the thing. So but that I, is addictive. Believe it or not, that bad feeling and I'm seeing it, my daughter's five, and I'm seeing it within some of her classmates already. I can see the ones that like that, that like the fight, that like the grief. Um, and my view is you stay away from all of them. Yeah. They are wrong. There's not many of them, but they always have the biggest reaction. And it my did. view is it then, you're, what's your You want to say something back, don't you? Yeah, well, of course I wanted to. Yeah, but I didn't. And then, and then, but later on, I, I just wrote, I wrote something really nice. Um, I can't remember what I wrote now. It would have been useful to remember what that was. And then, yeah, and then uh, the next day he said, I'm sorry, I, I don't... I think that was a bit of an over-the-top thing that I said yesterday Brilliant. or something. So yeah, you found... You, you actually had a good person there who, who probably went away and felt dreadful. And also... Now, the other thing as well, yeah. social shaming comes into this a lot. So if you were getting more positive points more positive reactions to that than negative he would have gone shit man i've got to be part of this gang i'm i've said the wrong thing here i was expecting everybody to change that <laughs> yeah, and actually yeah, everyone's yeah. like it shit i better go and like it and that's another human reaction and it's it's really tough all of that i think um my view is very simple in life now after doing this for so long is you come across an awful lot of people and don't think you have to be friends with all of them you have to surround yourself with the people that make you feel good about yourself and keep away from the people that make yourself make you feel bad about yourself more than anything else, or, or try to make you feel bad about your position or something like that. Yeah, because at the end of the day, do you want to be? Because also your peer group will affect how you are. You hang around with those people long enough, you'll start slagging other people off. That's how that becomes a collective. It's all peer pressure and these these weird little connections that we have of trying to do it. And yeah. look, the aim of the game is happiness. 
happiness is complicated because it's fleeting. But the one thing that I would say is, and I'm, I'm totally, even though his political stance has been rocky over the last few years for, for kind of understandable and misguided and misappropriated reasons by certain areas of the press. The one thing I do massively agree with with all of Jordan Peterson's work is that he says if you take responsibility for yourself and the way that you are with people that is a massive step forward. Mm. But then you can also take responsibility for the people around that you surround yourself with and that can have a major positive influence on your life and your relationships with other people and having got to the age I did and I, I was massively affected by my wife's um, redundancy as she was but in a different way for her I just suddenly got very anxious and I'm like do you know what I'm, I've had enough of dealing with anxiety I'm just is there, a, is there another way to be and there is there really really is you've just got to accept it and take responsibility for it and I think also within people's careers um, I see so many people expecting the industry to provide for them and that's a very silly thing to do you have to take full responsibility for that and look, let me just outline the industry as I see it at the moment there are 40,000 probably more than this now 40,000 last time I heard the figures 40,000 tracks hitting the streaming services every single week and you've got to make your one kind of float to the top of that that's a very, very complicated thing to do, um, particularly if you're an individual artist. And it's driving people into some rather silly decision-making things. So let's talk about some actual real figures, for example. Um, in current income within streaming, now let's be clear, streaming is not going anywhere because it solved piracy. Solved piracy almost overnight for the major record labels in a way that they had no idea it was fucking coming. As typical, they hadn't bothered to investigate the technology. Someone came up with it with them. And it just so happened that clusters and server clusters and all that stuff developed enough at the right time to actually do this on a worldwide basis. We saw that with Netflix as well. Far more information is on the Netflix servers than Spotify. But Spotify are being hit by far more tracks coming in. Apple Music, Tidal, all the rest of these streaming services. Um, that's never going to change. And there is a movement to try and get more money out of it that may change, but it's not going to change by an order of magnitude. It's not going to go up ten times. Yeah. Unless ten times more people come onto the service and pay the subscription fee, it's never going to change by, I would say, more than about 20 or 30%, even if there's legalisation around that. There's a few odd areas in that to do with major labels, access fees and all that kind of stuff, which is the fight I think people should really look into. So if anybody's interested in this, go and look up the access fees that major labels charge the streaming services, because that's where the scandal is, in, in my opinion. But put it this way, the actual, let's look at it from a musician's point of view. One million streams in English pounds, if you're the rights holder, is worth between three and four thousand pounds currently, I believe. Now, rights holder is a blanket term that means the person who's in charge of, who owns that material. So in major record label terms, that's the label. Your contract as an artist is then, if you're assigned to a major, is then how much of that do you get? How much is returned? That's where the maths gets a little bit tricky. But think of it from a totally independent point of view. If you have all of your rights, that's you. So if you can reach a thousand, uh, sorry, a million streams a month, then you can actually pull 
about three grand, three to four grand, probably just under because you've got an aggregator sat as well that will take, you know, somebody delivering your music to the streaming services um, can will actually take a small percentage of the top, but you can get the big lump of that pie instead of probably being on about 30% of it that you would be on a major, minus all of their deductions as well. And mm. bearing in mind, you know, they'll throw cabs at anything and recharge all of that shit. They'll take you to dinner and go, yeah, lovely, mate, love your new album, recharge you all of that and all of it. Yeah, it's just, it's it forever. You're forever recouping in that environment. Yeah. But as an independent artist, all you've got to get to, and I know I'm saying a lot here, but we're talking billions and billions and billions of streams uh, are available. You've just got to get your music to the point where it's making about a million streams a month. And then you've got an income from it. Mm-hmm. Now, that is not an easy task under any circumstances. I'm not even slightly suggesting that it is. It's going to take a lot of work. But you cannot assume that the streaming services are suddenly going to come in one day and go, oh, look at this guy. He's got you know 100 plays here, or 100 plays there. We're going to elevate him and make him the biggest thing. Which is, I think, some of the mentality that I'm seeing in people. It's like, why am I not more successful? Why is my music not more successful? Yeah. And why am I getting paid so little for streaming? It's terrible. Well, it is, but until, when you really look at it, you can get, and I've seen so many independent artists, and I've scoured it, that are doing over a million, sometimes two million, three million streams a month. Yeah. And I'm like, that's a living, man. That's, And that's also, when they go to bed, that is still going on. That's passive income. So my advice to anybody at the moment is to play the game. If you're going to get into this, don't sit and whinge about it. That's how it is. It ain't fucking changing. So find the angles. Find what's happening. It's like, right, okay, how do you get to a million streams? Well, for a start, you need a lot of followers and you need to put your music out regularly. So none of this thing of I'm going to take three years to make an album. Put two albums out a year. Get it done quickly. Don't worry too much, particularly at the beginning, about the quality because there's this expectation of... Um, when I say quality, I mean mixing quality and all the rest of it. Your ideas have still got to be great. So there's three main parts to a music. You've got your sounds, your ideas, and the mixing you break it down into those three simple things you may not feel that you've got all the sounds i promise you you've got all the sounds you need to make a record yeah don't get distracted 100%. by plugins all of that bollocks get your first things going get them out get them done nobody is waiting for your fucking music the, the you know the streaming services aren't the public certainly aren't because they're being bombarded with music left right and center and it's not like the old days where we only had music we've now got TV, we've got computer games, we've got, um, you know, the, the list goes on of, of the distractions in our life. Yeah. Um, YouTube, TikTok, you know, it's just, it's never ending, isn't it? It's just so many things that the public's attention's being taken by. Don't think that they're waiting for you to fucking release anything, which is that misconception. You know, you spend all of this time building up to a big release and then it goes, oh, no one's interested. Yeah. No. You start off right at the bottom and it's a horrible exponential curve, which means the, f- the front bit is going to be terrible and you're going to earn no money out of it, earn no money out of it. So put yourself in a position where you have another job that's going to be paying for that and work your tits off on your music. The reason being is if you don't, your competition is. And with 40,000 tracks a month, that is a lot of... A week, sorry. That is a lot of competition. And it's projected within 10 years to get up to about 350,000 tracks a week Flipping going on to the services. Wow. So yeah. making music is becoming a major endeavour. So you, this is a growth industry, but it's a gold rush. So you've got to get ahead of the game. So there's a couple of things that you can do. One of them, if you make dance music, for example, or in fact, any kind of music, but dance music in particular, it's like, what are the public going to do? 
And what do you want? You want customers. So look at this as an e-commerce situation. You want customers. You want them to be using a lot of your music and then you want them to come back. Okay. So how do you, if you can make all of those three things increase, then you're going to be doing all right. But you've got to look at all of that. So A, you need to bring people in. Well, you can do that on social media and all the rest of it. I would say there's more coming on Facebook and Instagram. But you need to get good at that shit about bringing people in. This is outside of the music. This is just the promotion of it. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, say you make dance music. Well, why not put together a playlist? Take all of your tracks um, and edit them all down and put them into an hour-long sequenced mix. Chop all of those tracks then back out and work out a way with your digital aggregator to make it seamless on playback. And then promote it as, hey, going to the gym, going for a long drive, to your fans, listen to this. Mega mi a mega mix. A mega mix effectively, <laughs> but a DJ mix now. That's what we're kind of, that's what's, what we're, it's kind of known as, but a continuous mix. So, you know, you're, you're a bit of a fan of me. If, you know, if you're starting to gather fans, you like my music, you're going on a long drive or you're going to work or something like that, yeah, listen to Sunday this. Sunday afternoon, chill out. Yeah. And then you've got 10 tracks. Then you've pulled them in, and instead of them just coming in and listening to one track, they've listened to 10 of your tracks, and they've gone past the 30-second cutoff for streaming on every single one of them. So you've got 10 streams out of them from one person. So that's... I, I have no idea why this is not being done more, because everyone's like, oh, I need to get onto playlists. I need to get, get your own playlist going, and then remix all of your stuff and do chill-out versions, maybe, and then put one... Oh, having a nice Sunday afternoon, put this on. Yeah. Because that's... they're more likely, then, to save that playlist... And the, the funny thing is with public, you think about your own reactions, like, oh man, that made me feel good. I'm gonna to listen to it again. From that one playlist, you could create somebody who's gonna generate you a thousand more streams over the next year. You just don't know. But all of these incremental things start to add up. The other thing is to say, look, if you're making dance music, don't fucking put your club mixes up. No one's gonna to listen to them. No one is gonna sit through 20 seconds of fucking beats. Yeah. I it's just put your radio, do radio edits, make sure everything is short and make sure, because look, Spotify and all the streaming services have this rule that if you don't play past 30 seconds, so if you someone clicks away in the first 30 seconds, that stream doesn't count. That's not being counted. Now that's also to stop all sorts of naughty things that were going on at the beginning where mm -hmm. people were having bot farms that literally played 20 seconds went back to the beginning. I think there was one guy who initially at the beginning of Spotify put a five second piece of music up or 10 second or something and then just got his computer to play it constantly. <laughs> Earned money. Now obviously you know, it's a new service so we're going to find all these little I guess. Quirks. I guess also in terms of like putting out an album with loads of really short tracks they'd probably err on the side of like not doing that yes. because you could get... Yeah. Yeah, you could you could probably put an album. But out also, look, it's an audio format. Long. So um, Spotify are not going to penalise you if you put an audio file up where you're discussing how you made your track. Your real fans might actually be interested in this. So if you put an album out, say, or a collection, or even a long EP, maybe five tracks, and you put it out, and then people you've got good reaction from it. Well, maybe do like a director's cut that you see on the DVD where you're talking through it. Yeah, I did that with my EP. I mean, no one fucking listened to it, but uh, <laughs> but <laughs> no, it's, it's a great idea. And the people yeah. who were into it were like, that was such a cool thing to listen to, yeah. like where the album art came from and yes, all that stuff. Exactly, and know? just and but also cut that up into a series of tracks. You think about this if you're doing anything. So if you're doing a long thing and it's you know it's going to end up 20 minutes long well can you cut it into three sections and put it into a playlist of course you can they're not going to penalize you for doing this they all they want is people staying on their app that's all they want hmm. and want people and if they, if they feel that they're playing now the other good thing that happens is if you 
say from these playlists that you're creating or these DJ mixes. And one, the trick is to rename, if, you, if your tracks are already released on Spotify, is to put something like re-edit and in brackets after it when you put the thing. So you're creating a new track within the system for these kind of playlists. Right. Um, then a Spotify's algorithm will look for artist intention retention retention so think about this if if basically a, a follower or a listener comes onto an artist's page and then stays on 10 tracks and plays through you think about how you would design that system if you were trying to work out which artists should be promoted in a particular genre it's going to go well these people are really generating some interest within their group within their you know, their following group, you know, this person's listened to 10 tracks in a row. You're more likely then to go up the curve of being suggested within certain other things. So it takes a long time, but you can play that, not play the system, but you can use it to your advantage and build a system that creates, that initially it will be low, but you, I mean, I've seen it, particularly with the beat-led hip-hop guys. Mm. It's, it's now getting to the point where fully independent artists with no record label, just their own release things, are up to three or four million um, plays a month. Now that's beating major record label artists, and you're talking there about a serious income actually coming in. Yeah. But you've just got also you need a lot of music to generate uh, for people to be skipping through. You know, if you just put ten tracks on there, well, you're not going to get a million plays a month. Traction. You need a lot of yeah. So it takes time. Um, but one of the reasons I'm saying all of this, particularly with streaming, is that I've noticed a lot of people particularly artists that have been around for a bit get terribly uptight with streaming and then make these grand gestures of right I'm taking all of my stuff off the streaming services it's now only going to go on to um, this format or it's only going to go on to these more fan based sites and that is the worst thing you could possibly do because the difference between someone who is willing to go onto Bandcamp and part with serious money to buy your stuff and the person who's going to casually listen to you on a subscription that they're already paying for. These two customers, you have to consider them customers really, are chalk and fucking cheese and the yeah. two do not work in the same paradigms even. They don't work with the same uh, mentality with stuff. To convert one to the other is, a, is not a stretch but you have to be getting the casual people coming in. So you know there's all sorts of things that you can do to push the more fan based area and you will find financially you'll get more from that for less but you have to in my opinion have both up never take away a stream yeah. never ever be on everything that you possibly can as long as you can manage the work you may have to pick things like youtube for example the royalties off youtube are absolutely dreadful so maybe not put all of your music up on there maybe if you've got a fan base site in your streaming service so in other words something like Bandcamp or some of the other things that are more to do with people actually coming in and really supporting the artist and being their major fan you're only going to get probably a tenth of your fan base are only ever going to be that um, maybe you put your music up first on these fan sites and then wait two months and then put it up on the streaming services but whatever you do don't cut any income stream off because I promise you, you will have to go back to it anyway. You'll just go, fuck, man, I've got to, you know, I've got to get that going. Yeah, it's like building up a social media following, isn't it? I, um, uh, like, I have quite, um, I mean, it's not really, this conversation is really about me and my social media following, but I have a lot of followers on Twitter and high-profile people, and there are so many times I've gone to delete that, de deactivate that account, 
and then I'm like, no, it's no, stupid God, no. to do no, that because I've built yeah. up such a fucking yeah. huge. Anything amount, so... that you do on a professional level, you have to keep running as long as you've not said something stupid on it, and then. Uh, uh, oh that, no, that, that's happened that daily. Can, <laughs> yeah, but not not in, not get you into the kind of trouble that you see in the media. You know, it's just like yeah, you know, when you when yeah. it makes me laugh that there's a whole generation like of journalists that. piling through people's old Twitter feeds to find the one bit where they said something stupid as a 17-year-old, and you're like, yeah, come on, mate, you did the same. I bet you say it in the office, left, right, and centre. Exactly, yeah, there's that classic um, classic uh, TED talk, isn't there, where a woman lost her job in an air, in a flight because she made a joke about... Um, oh, just a flippant joke. that she, she made a tweet and a flippant joke at the beginning of a flight, boarded a plane with no signal, landed, and there was people at the airport waiting to a journalist. Oh, my it's, God. It's, there's yeah. a TED talk. It's the guy who wrote um, The Men Who Stare at Goats. What's oh, his name? yes, yeah. I know, yeah, he yeah. does a TED talk of that situation. So, yeah, things can get out of hand very quickly. Um, but, um, yeah, man, thank you. Thank you so much uh, for speaking to me today. It's been such a... Pleasure, Chris, I, You've been on my list to speak to from the very beginning of this podcast, I think, <laughs> so it's amazing to finally get here. Um, yeah, and I really admire and, and love your work, and it really inspires me. And if you, I just, yeah, I want to say that if you look through the comments on Discogs with the Freemason stuff, it's yeah, people have have really you know admired the work you've done. It's really affected a lot of people. I think equally with the F nine stuff, if you look through the F nine comments on your YouTube page, everyone is just saying how incredible it is, how inspirational it is. Well, that's great because it means it's worth the. Everything, every journey that you take that's worthwhile is a heavy load. It's difficult to do. And that's great to know because for me, it has been difficult at times and people don't realise just how difficult stuff can be. But everybody has their load to bear. But I love it all still. I love this industry. I know that you do too. That's why, you know, I know that you love, in the same way that I do, the equipment, the, the ability, the, 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 the options, the creative thing that you can do. Um, so it's definitely 100% worth it I would say from anybody who's actually out there and wanting to do this or is doing it and wants to get better uh, or is it a point where they're wondering whether they should stop doing it it's the the benefits of it 100% do outweigh the load lifting that it actually takes yeah and as long a- as you look at it right <laughs> as long as you look at it right and you don't be a dick the world's got enough dicks and the world's got enough negativity that really, really does. There's enough crap going on. So you treat everybody with respect, be happy, enjoy it, and remember to sniff... What's, what's the famous quote? Remember to sniff the flowers on the way through the garden. Hmm. Excellent, man. Well, it's good. very good. Good note to end on. Pleasure, Chris. Uh, thank Great you, man. Wow, what an amazing guy James is. Um, I hold that guy in such high regard. Um, He's a wonderful human being, uh, aside from the production skills, uh, which are phenomenal, which are astronomically good. Um, He is also an incredibly humble and down-to-earth human being um, who loves to share his knowledge. And um, yeah, if you buy any of the F9 sample packs, you'll see that there's... uh, it's not just sounds in there, there's a lot of love and there's a lot of education and um, yeah, you won't be disappointed. Check out his F9 remixes as well, which I mentioned, they're absolutely some of the best songs I've ever heard in my life. And uh, yeah, the Freemasons catalogue as well is one to be discovered if you don't know it already. Okay, let's wind it up then. Um, thank you so much for listening over the last four years. Uh, it's been a really amazing ride. There's going to be no big speech here. Um, but I do appreciate you listening and I appreciate the 
people who donated, uh, much appreciated. I wish you a very prosperous and healthy new year. Uh, look after each other, love each other. I'm Midiera, and perhaps I'll see you again soon.